We interrupt this program to bring you news bulletins from Washington, D.C. All of the wires have sent us the account. The president of the United States has been killed in the White House, along with the Secretary of State and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Other bulletins coming from around the country say that the governors of several states have been killed. The governor of California, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and of New York. There are other bulletins that tell us that people are being herded into the streets of the large cities and machine gunned down like cattle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the communist takeover of the United States. This is the end of democracy as you and I know it. I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. Reverend Perkle, are the pictures we are about to see true facts or are they figments of your imagination? I can document every statement that I make in this film. And all of the dramatized reenactments are taken from actual events that have happened in Russia, Korea, China, and Cuba, where the communists have already taken over. The only difference is that we're using Americans to emphasize that the same thing can and will happen here if they take over. What do you think of the future of America? Are we going to experience years of prosperity? Or will we be trampled down under the feet of our enemies like the horses in the book of Revelation trampled down God's enemies? Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Revival must happen in the next 24 months. Bionic. <laughs> You're setting the stage. If our, uh, our unique uh, theme music did not give it away, uh, we have a specially prepared uh, theme sequence coming in our opening into this show because this is a very, very special classic Future Quake Show that we're going to have uh, this evening. Our special guest that we have uh, is Mr. Tim Ormond who is a movie producer and editor of the classic movie, uh, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do?, as well as The Burning Hell and numerous other Christian and other movie productions. And we're going to be talking uh, tonight about the impact and legacy of cutting-edge, what they call Godsploitation cinema in the public. And uh, Mr. Orman, it is with bated excitement that I welcome you to the Future Quake Show. Well, thank you, guys. It's uh, it's good to be here. I was kind of looking forward to it myself. It gives me an opportunity to talk to some people I haven't talked to in a long time via the Internet. And I guess, uh, you know, talk about the gospel, the history, and, uh, you know, whatever, wherever the conversation leads. Well, I tell you what, if you ever wanted to find an audience that could understand you and your work, you've hit the right audience with our Futurians at the Future Quake uh, group here because they're going to really enjoy and appreciate what you've done and they're going to learn a lot more about it and I'm sure become big fans uh, after this. You know, I've been looking forward to this interview for so long uh, as as the fruit of over a year of interest I've had in trying to get this together and uh, I became fascinated with you 
in your overall story of your background from, from just merely watching you in film. And I want to thank somebody who helped bring this interview together because I had been looking for a way to contact you for a very long time. And Jim Ridley, uh, uh, who's a writer for the Nashville Scene, a downtown newspaper, uh, helped in getting us together. Uh, he's, a, he's a great person, and I consider him a close friend. At my mother's memorial service, he was right there with me, and uh, I'm, I'm proud to know him. Well, he did some great work uh, writing about your background, which uh, got me even more enthralled with your work beyond what I had seen uh, on the silver screen. Uh, and I, I really look looking forward, like I said, to hosting someone here who, who's really a classic Future Quake guest, uh, a, a Christian uh, who has worked for the kingdom of God on your own terms, in your own unique way, and you've certainly left an amazing legacy as a result. And I think your experience and your perspective is one that we're all going to be able to learn from. And, and someone who I really see as sort of a hero figure. And yeah. now, that, that, that kind of worried me when you said that. You don't <laughs> want to put me up on a pedestal now. Well, it you know, they're strange pedestals we make here, but they're pedestals nevertheless. And uh, I think you serve as an example and role model in so many ways. Uh, you know, on top of that, we don't normally have on our show a guest who actually is a godson of Bella Lugosi. Right. Now, that's kind of a dangerous territory there, but you want to hear the story behind it, I presume. Well, lay it on us. Okay. Well, now that that would get into the history of my mom and dad, uh, because in essence, uh, I don't personally remember Bela Lugosi as a someone like an uncle. Uh, this is a uh, basically a close friend of my father's through the industry. Uh, mm -hmm. He worked out in Hollywood, which we can get into uh, right. late, later when you talk about it. But as uh, he would come into contact with various people, uh, up-and-coming stars of the day, one of the people that he became friendly with was Bela Lugosi. And he invited him to come to our home one night. When I say our home, of course, I was just a, a child, a baby even. And we lived up on Beachwood Drive, which was down about two miles from the Hollywood sign. Oh. And, and my mother actually tells me the story. And as I said, I don't have any direct recollection of it. She said when he came to the door that night and she opened it, there he was in all his glory with the cape and everything. Uh -huh. but, but he was not there to say, can I suck your blood? He was actually saying, good evening. It's so much a pleasure to meet you. And he kissed, he kissed her hand, and he had won her over as an elegant gentleman. And then a friendship developed, which, of course, I was not part of. But somewhere along the line, and we won't know till we get to glory, uh, they asked if he would become my godfather, and then through the years, of course, I call I, I use that as a uh, you know kind of a badge of honor, a claim to fame. But I can't say specifically, you know, that I remember him uh, personally. Like you know, uh, uh, sit on my knee, Timmy, and bite your mother good night. <laughs> you know, this unique circumstance is just sort of typical of your very unique life. Uh, you mentioned your mother and father, uh, June and Ron Orman. Right. Uh, and I want you to tell us a little bit about their background, uh, how they met. Your mother was famous in, in Hollywood early. In fact, your dad became as well, too. Uh, but I guess she not, she was the biggest names in show business. She, she appeared with them, even danced with the Duke of Windsor, I guess I read in one, one story. Oh, story. right. Wow. And, and, and actually managed for a while the Three Stooges. Right. Uh, 
basically, before we get into that, I just want to say I had a great set of parents. And although any any kid, uh, and myself included, growing up is going to have the typical rebellion phase, which I certainly had, when I think back on my mom and dad, I couldn't have asked for any better parents if I had, you know, custom picked them out of a, off of God's shelf. So that said, my dad... Uh, was born in Baldwin, Louisiana, which is a little small Creole town, and he made his way out to San Francisco, where some relatives uh, lived, and pretty much grew up out there and got into, uh, when I say magic, of course, I'm talking about magic tricks, not uh, not anything else. And basically, that led over a period of time into the lower echelon of show business. My mother grew up in New York, where her mother and father, Norma and Cliff Taylor, uh, they ran a coffee shop called Coffee Cliffs. And I have always wanted but have never been able to find some historical records of it existing in New York, but I have no doubt that it did based on my mom's story. But apparently this was a coffee shop of fame during its day, and a lot of the people uh, that were stars and infamous, among them... Um, uh, some gangsters of the time, I can't think of the particular name, um, but one of the famous names in the Elliot Ness era would have made their uh, acquaintance at Coffee Cliffs. Well, one night, uh, they, someone came in who offered my mother, who at the time was, you know, seven, eight years old, she uh, apparently was singing there at Coffee Cliffs just for entertainment, uh, like might happen at any place in Nashville. And they heard her and looked at her personality, and that led her to an interview, uh, not with Zigfield, that was later, but it led to an interview, which in turn led to having her actually perform her act eventually on Broadway. I'm not sure of the initial place that it was performed, but she did indeed, as you say, become a star in her element and did. Uh, eventually dance with the Duke of Windsor, perform with Bob Hope, and a slew of other people. But before that happened, or possibly in that same arena, she would go out on tour. And, of course, today, you know, we have the Internet, we have local cinemas, we have a million and one night spots. Back in her day, they had vaudeville. And they had a slew of one-night stands between, uh, I, I can't think of the the chain of uh, towns, but there was certainly one that led from New York down through the south and ended up in Florida. And it was a, a series of one-night stands. I presume today a comic performing at right. comedy clubs would be similar. Well, she was at one particular show doing her performance, and of course she was a headliner. Uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, she carried the top bill at the time. And my dad, in his show, which was separate from them, was coming in the following week. Well, apparently there was a slight overlap of a day or two, and she decided she would sit in the audience and watch the rehearsal of the incoming show because hers was packing and getting ready to leave for the next town. Well, my dad was the MC of that incoming show, and my mother sitting in the darkness, however many seats back, I don't know, and a gentleman next to her by the name of Joe Rollo, who was her confidant, and I think possibly a boyfriend, I'm not sure about that. She said, you see that guy up there? And she's speaking of my dad. She says, I'm going to marry him. And, of course, six weeks later, if you read the story, they were married. Now, I don't know all the romance that happened in between, but I do know it was a whirlwind courtship, and 
from that moment forward, they began what eventually led to what we're discussing tonight. But I can, you know, I can go into great depth. Oh, or, that's now that's that's a good taste. Uh, yeah, your, your mother came from some of the top people. Your dad sort of came up the hardware in Hollywood, but they met and intersected. And it is a unique love story of your mother and father of how well they work together. And, and, and they took a path through a very unique part of show business, blazed their own trail. You know, we'll never know what their fate may have been if they had gone through more traditional paths individually, but together they were led in this, in this one particular path that we'll talk about. Um, one of the things I read about it with your father, was that he was a big producer of westerns and somebody who's famous. I know my mom and dad were, were big fans of Lash LaRue. Right. Uh, and he was uh, someone who appeared in a lot of movies your dad did. What were some other famous people that were appeared in the movies that uh, your folks produced? Well, I will, in preparation for you asking a similar question, I brought up the Internet Movie Database and brought, typed in my, my dad. And I, although I could uh, list them for you, it would be easier for your listeners just to go up and look. But uh, there's a – actually, he produced more films than I even was aware of, uh, you know, many of them, of course, before I was born. But let's see. Well, Lash LaRue, of course, uh, we've already mentioned back during that time when we lived out in San Fernando Valley after we moved from Hollywood, we lived next door to uh, one of Roy Rogers' property, and I can remember petting one of his triggers uh, huh. on the nose. Uh, we, would, we would visit many sets. I can remember being on the set of Rin Tin Tin. Uh, which, of course, to me at the time, I just was going along with my dad. It wasn't like I was interested in meeting someone there. I was just along for the ride, so to speak. Uh, thinking back to Hollywood, it's difficult for me to put a particular term on who they know or who they knew. Obviously, as I mentioned, my mom performed with Bob Hope. I do remember uh, a photo of them with the Three Studios, which we can uh, mm -hmm. talk about in a moment. Uh, Jerry Colonna, who was a, a comedy uh, comedian. Uh, I think he did kind of performance-type comedy. He kind of looked like a Groucho Marx type in his early years. Uh, and a, a slew of people who were in um, westerns in their earlier days. I'm pretty sure Chuck Connors was a friend of my dad's, hmm. uh, probably before The Rifleman. Right. I, I do remember uh, sitting on um, a, a vague memories of sitting on John Wayne's boat. Uh, but that's, you know, so long. And yeah. I, I, I'm not going to say my dad and, and Duke were friends. I think they were more acquaintances. But you got to realize Hollywood in those days, there was, it was a, totally different than today. And of course, there was the A-level stars, which would be the Clark Gable and, right. the, you know, Gary Coopers. And then there was the B-level, which was more uh, of our circle. I yeah. don't think my dad hung out with uh, Clark Gable. In fact, right. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But he was pretty much a, um, a known entity in Hollywood, so there were very few places that he couldn't go and be uh, at least get his foot in the door. But I don't know that I could give you specific names. And well, when you get into the national years, I could. Well, that, that's the thing. Um, it's interesting to find someone, and as we get more into your discussion, people will marvel at, at more how it ties into the interests of our future Quake audience. But uh, here you and your family ended up being right under our nose of where we produce Future Quake here in Nashville. And when you relocated to Nashville, from what I understand, your family pretty much created Nashville cinema as far as getting mm -hmm. in the famous country music stars and creating cinema for them where for the first time they actually had movies where they could star and people could see them on the big screen. 
and and basically all the major country music stars of the 60s for example you all were were regular contact with for these movies correct well it was what what's an interesting side note here was i wish i could sing and never was able to <laughs> because if i could have sung and carried a tune and had the interest in it which i really didn't i could have easily had a career in nashville as a singer because we had as you're uh, saying right now an inroad into everyone and my dad did kind of push it on me that i needed to learn to sing i wasn't interested in it but uh you know we were friendly with all of the uh producers and such in town, or at least my dad was, uh, as I was a teenager at those times, I did, didn't really care. But yes, to answer your question, our, our known uh, term is the first family of film in Nashville, and that is not a term of royalty. A lot of today's filmmakers in Nashville wouldn't even have heard of myself or my dad, but during that particular era, yes, there was nothing going on in Nashville film-wise, and my dad threw a, actually ties back to vaudeville. Mm-hmm. There's, so, there's so many side roads I can go down, it's hard right. to keep a particular but central thought. Minnie Pearl, Del Reeves, uh, Bill, Whispering Bill Anderson are all in your movies. Oh, and yeah. Then, then you had Ralph Emery. And country music oh. in your movies, Eddie Hill, all these kind of people. I've seen pictures, you know, with you all with people like Loretta Lynn and Johnny Cash and uh, who's well, that, who of everyone had some connection to you all. Well, basically, uh, to make a long story short or to, to lengthen it, depending on what your uh-huh. listeners want, the connection was Smiley Wilson uh, and his son or son-in-law, Earl Richards, and and Rita, who were in Girl from the Back of Row, and actually Rita was a makeup person on, or one of them on Burning Hell. Uh, they are still uh, acquaintances of mine. I haven't actually seen them in person, but anyway, as I, I'm, I'm going to digress here. Uh, Smiley Wilson was the original manager for Loretta Lynn before she was probably as big as she became. And my and Smiley was someone that my mom and dad knew from the vaudeville days. Hmm. And so Smiley said to my dad or mom or both of them, why don't you come to Nashville? You guys would fit right in because there's no one here who can do what you guys do. And so Smiley kind of guided and introduced my dad around to some of the bigger uh, you know, record producers in town, the one who was most friendly. And help me remember this if, if uh-huh. uh, you can. And Star Day Records uh, was a was almost like a uh, ache of rose of its day. And mm. they are one of the entities behind or the financial entities behind Girl from the Back of Row. But I cannot for the life of me remember the person's name who was associated with Star Day. But, uh, but Smiley, anyway, was very right. instrumental in, in introducing us around. I mean, I can name all the names. Now, uh, do you, this may, I don't know if this goes back, but did you actually do some shooting in Owen Bradley's Quonset Hut where he did all that stuff with Patsy Cline? Uh, Forty Acre Feud was indeed uh, filmed on the uh, on the well, we built a set, of course, inside yeah. the Bradley's barn. So, but yes. that's that's almost like sacred ground in country music. Some of the most that, classic country music it's ever done were done in that building. That's exactly true. And I have uh, now I can't say I participated in that particular movie. I visited the set. I was actually going to school at Acadia Baptist Academy in uh, Eunice, Louisiana, where my, I mentioned my dad was born in yeah. Baldwin, but he still had relatives in Iota, which was about yeah. oh, 
Suarez from Nashville and Murfreesboro, and they needed to put me somewhere for a while as they sorted out their life. This was before Nashville. So they found a, a Christian school uh, in Eunice, which was near Iota, where my relatives were, and I spent three years there. And during those years was when my dad made White Lightning Road, which, of course, I did uh, did perform in, and then Four Acre Feud, which you're mentioning. And, and I came up for a, a weekend or a Christmas break, and I visited the set. So you may have seen a picture with me uh, and Furlan Husky, for instance. Right. Mm. But, but I did not particular, I did not personally uh, participate in that uh, film. Well, I want to talk about the movies. Okay. Because this is something where where the, the your cult fans of your family from around the world who who just love your movies dearly uh over the decades uh your your kind of movies um, i i guess they they come from the golden age of what you would call drive-in exploitation flicks right. um can you tell us about some of the titles of some of those movies? You mentioned just a couple of them, and they usually had some kind of angle or core audience that they exploited, well, and some more interesting facts about them. Well, now you're referring to the Christian films or the ones before that? Before that. Okay. Well, now realize my when I was born, I grew up in an, a filmmaking family, so it became part of my uh, persona. It wasn't anything I necessarily aspired to. I just kind of grew up with it happening. Yeah. I'm looking now at uh, Internet Movie Database, just so I can remind myself, uh, please don't touch me, uh, where my dad was a producer. Let me just think of them just for a moment. Well, can, I, I, can I mention something about that movie? Because it's ironic you all had done one of those. Okay. Because we had another rather free-spirit Christian person on our show uh, not too long ago, Joe Bob Briggs, that does oh, sure. the Drive-In Movie Review, yeah. mm-hmm. who is a practicing Christian or a professing Christian, although he has a very unique way of expression, and he had some interesting thoughts, and he explained what they called the hygiene films or the kind of things where talked about very controversial sex topics and things, and then they would sell, and he mentioned a gentleman, I believe there was a, a movie, uh, uh, Mom and Dad, done oh, by Kroger, Kroger Bath. Kroger Bath, my my mom and dad were friendly with him. I do remember Kroger Babs uh, vaguely. Well, one of the things uh, they would do, at, at, at I guess at the intermission, was sell books that were like uh, oh, yeah, hygiene yeah, books. I did, yeah, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> so you all had one of your own, and that was what the Don't Touch Me movie was, uh, right? I would presume, and I don't know this for a fact, because once again, uh, you're giving me a legend, which is uh, you know, at least a good part of it, belongs to my dad and mom because I was just there and a participant. Right. But I did not invent the idea of let's make please don't touch me. I would presume that my mom and dad saw mom and uh, my mother and father saw the movie Mom and Dad and thought to themselves, we need to make a movie like this. That's right. my guess. Right. That led to please don't touch me and the books. That's that's what the story is. I mean, we could go into the movie. Lash LaRue, by the way, played a, uh, a psychiatrist in the movie. He didn't play a Western. He played a legitimate part. And my dad's other business partner, Orman McGill, played the hypnotist. Uh, and then Jimmy and Mildred Mulcahy, who were, uh, well, that, that's another story I could go off on. They were the harmonicas. But anyway, I would imagine they said to themselves, let's make a movie like this. And I, I will digress just for a second. What got them from the vaudeville days to the movie days was simply this. 
going on the road with, let's just say, 15 to 20 people and them being the manager was a nightmare, as you can imagine. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. running a country music tour today. It was like the, the road manager is going crazy. And they said, let's get out of this. Let's make movies because then once it's in the can, and that's still a term used today, uh, we got the shot, it's in the can. Uh, well, maybe it's not used exactly yeah. today, but uh, similar. Then we can basically forget about all the craziness and, and go out and market the film. So they got out of the road show, which is the vaudeville era, and moved into movies so they could continue their creativity but have it contained within a something they owned and they didn't have to pick up and move every week. Right. Uh, so uh, please don't touch me. I imagine it happened that way. But I'll tell you a story about the intermission. Yes, indeed, we, we sold the books. And by today's standards, of course, they would be nothing. Uh, they wouldn't even be worth, uh, you know, someone's look. But I did hold them in my hand. I did walk around to cars and sell them. And the way it happened was uh, at the end of the movie, and I think subliminally uh, or perhaps as an intro to Please Don't Touch Me, there was a, uh, a uh, text uh, CG thrown up on the screen which said, you know, warning due to the serious nature of this movie, uh, you know, uh, whatever the warning was. And during intermission, there will be a special um, announcement from Gregory Raymond, who was actually my dad in another persona. And then <laughs> as the movie ended, my dad would come across, this is Gregory Raymond from the concession stand of this movie. And that would lead into a pitch. And, of course, you can imagine in the 50s all the guys with their girls in the car and the drive-ins and everything that's associated with that. And then the pitch would say, you know, right after the movie, uh, and it was a – it wasn't by today's standards. It was nothing by those days. Right. It was. It was. It was. Uh, you know, flashy and it was. Uh, it was edgy. But today, it's, it wouldn't be much. But anyway, the pitch was: if you'd like to get a copy of this book, either for the male or the female, please turn on your parking lights, and an attendant will come around. And so, basically, blink, 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 blink. It was like a Christmas tree. Uh, and you'd look out there, and I can remember my mom and dad's and face especially the night, first time they tried it, they lit up because they said, wow, we've got a success. And I'll I'll tell you another story about that relating to Untamed Mistress. But then, of course, we had to go out and sell them. Well, obviously, Gregory Raymond didn't. Uh, My dad did, as not as Ron Orman, just as somebody. And my mom did. And then, of course, I think I said, hey, can I do it? (laughs) And so they said, sure. And so I do have memories of walking around. And we sold them for a dollar each. Or I forget if we gave a special. Uh, there was a book for the male and a book for the female. And I can remember right now there was nothing in the book that was uh, – it, it was pretty much medical terminology and yeah. it wasn't anything uh, you know like you could find with two clicks on the Internet today. What, what a fun time, though. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, this, this was the era of true uh, carnival P.T. Barnum you know, marketing, and, uh, you know, I think of William Castle, and he was another one doing this kind of stuff at the time, and I, I just sort of miss some of the creativity of marketing, you know, that they have today. Um, but I want to talk about a few of your other movies that are that are even more famous. Um, you mentioned the country music ones, like White Lightning Road and 40 Acre mm-hmm. Feud, and I want, to, I want to see White Lightning Road because I think it actually has some stock car racing footage in it. And it does. One of my, one of my f- favorites there. But one of them I saw that that more people know about is called Mesa of the Lost Women. 
Okay. I think it well, has slipped into the public domain. Uh, um, certainly it has. Uh, I will segue into Mesa for you, but I'm going to tell you one quick story sure. about Untamed Mistress because it goes along with what you're talking about, the creativity of the moment. Right. Uh, uh, and if we want to come back and revisit this later, I will. I'm going to give you the punchline. Okay. In order to market Untamed Mistress, my dad did the exploitation, which uh, we'll talk about later, God exploitation. But then it was purely exploitation of uh, Velda, uh, who, who would be her mate, man or beast, to give the illusion of whatever they want. But, of course, the movie was much tamer than that. Right. But to publicize that, and I remember this vividly. You couldn't do it today. Well, maybe you could in smaller towns, but, of course, drive-ins aren't there. But I have this memory. In some small southern town, in a uh, convertible, probably Cadillac, uh, some probably a local was driving. I believe my mother would have been in the front right seat. In the back was a buxomy woman, not necessarily the woman from the movie, right. just someone we would hire, and... A gentleman who was a friend of my dad named Marty Barth, who was inside a gorilla costume. And on the side mm. of the car was, premiering tonight, untamed mistress, who will be her mate, man or beast? And, of course, that was broadcast over a loudspeaker as we drove down Main Street, uh, small town USA. And on the night, on the way to the drive-in that night, I remember my dad being very angry because we were stuck in traffic and couldn't get to the drive-in until he realized this long line of cars that he was stuck behind were there to get into our movie. Wow. <laughs> then, then he was excited. And once, once we knew that, of course, he pulled around. So anyway, I, I could go off. There's so many terms. But uh, Mesa of Lost Women, uh, that the reason it's in the uh, public domain, it was initially, if anyone watches it today, They'll kind of see two aspects of the movie. One is very scientific, and one is kind of crazy and out there. Uh The movie was initially made, and it was very scientific, and it didn't make a dime for anyone. And and we had nothing to do with it. When I say we, that was before my time. But my mom and dad had nothing to do with it. Those people either came to my mom and dad or vice versa. I don't know that. Uh And they said, hey, look what we've got. What can you help us do with it? And my dad and mom collectively came up with the idea of Jackie Coogan, oh, that's the name I forgot, right. the mad scientist, the uh, spider women with the long uh, fingernails. And I, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they got mops and dyed it black and used those right. wigs. And, you know, they, they had the Mesa of Lost Women that you're talking about. But all that stuff, which is memorable in the film that your listeners would be interested in, that was all done secondarily to the original project. You all, Basically, what I understand, and this was ha- happening a lot in B-movies back then, somebody shot a lot of footage, or it was leftover footage in other cases. Right. And, and, and your dad was asked to make something out of it quickly yeah. and cheaply. Make something watchable. That was it. That, that's exactly it. That's also Untamed Mistress, and as you'll get to later, yeah. Sacred Symbol, which is where I kind of picked up the tradition. Yeah. But yes, that's very true. And I don't, of course, I don't know the details, but I do. Uh, and we never owned uh, Mesa of Lost Women. I, I'm pretty sure that was made for Halco or. Uh, something, right. but I, but we didn't personally own it. My dad and mom didn't did indeed. You'll see their name, and it's still there. Matter of fact, I watched it a few years ago. But yeah, you yeah. can go uh, watch it on YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's up yeah. there. Yeah, but when people and and yeah, uh, as I said, 
public domain sites have it. But when, when you watch movies like that, I know a lot of our, our listeners enjoy a good cheesy boo movie like, like I do. And, and sometimes when things don't make sense and they're a little disjointed, there's a reason. A lot of times, you you know, you were asked to make a purse out of a sow's ear. Exactly. Uh, like even Roger Corman, who was sort of like your upper tier level of B movies. Right. He would shoot a whole bunch of stuff on the same sets and be asked to make three movies out of it. And, and come up with a with a script almost in editing booth. Uh, Roger Corman um, makes me think of Ron Howard because you know Ron, when Ron got out of Happy Days, he did his first movie for for Roger Corman with the stipulation that he be the director. Only reason I bring that up is years later, years later, I get a phone call and apparently Ron Howard's first movie appearance as a baby uh, was in one of my dad's films, and they asked me. Could I get a copy of it uh, for them, for the Biography Channel, who was doing a, a thing yeah. about Ron Howard? Unfortunately, I couldn't, uh, but that was just interesting. I didn't even know that, you know, until that moment. Well, another one that's one of your most famous ones, and and uh, I wouldn't even really call controversial. It's more of a historical relic than anything. Was a movie called by two names, either The Monster and the Stripper or The Exotic Ones, but the it mon- has a huge following. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's very interesting that it does. It was never my favorite film. Uh, that, that's it, it's kind of comical when I look back at it. But the famous person who has endured over the years from that movie, although I've not seen him since we wrapped the movie, is Sleepy LaBeef, who played the monster. He has a huge continued to this day. Uh, search him on YouTube. Just yeah. go Sleepy LaBeef. You'll see he's rockabilly then and now. Although I just remember him from the movie, and I guess uh, since he's such a big guy, uh, he just wanted to be in the movie, or my dad convinced him. I don't know that story, but the story of how it got to be um, the the monster and the stripper was back when it was made in uh, I think 1967. That was when my dad and I and I love my dad and mom for this. Uh, unfortunately, this was one of their goals that never was accomplished. But my dad was trying very hard to get me a singing career. And that, if you watch the movie, you'll see me singing in it. And I do okay, but I really didn't want to be doing it, and I didn't do a great job. I didn't have that X factor as they now have the TV. Uh, I was just basically singing. And I did okay, but uh, when I took the movie from film to video and decided, you know, I made this decision, we need to change the name from the exotic ones to Monster and Stripper because it would have more saleability. I also, and this is pure ego, decided let me cut out that ridiculous song. Uh, and I, I couldn't cut it out completely without it just making a, a bad uh, yeah. editorial jump. So I trimmed it down as much as possible. In the original version, it's a full, you know, uh, three verses and a chorus. Uh, in the video version, which is the only one people could find today, it's uh, basically, you know, one verse. And uh, and I'm pretty sure it's, well, the Hertz goes on and on and on and on. Uh, yeah, that and that's pretty much all I remember. But uh, it, it, it was a great movie, uh, and it's fun to look back on. I don't think we made much money off of it at that time. It's become more famous uh, today than it ever was back then. Uh, I still keep in touch. Uh, Ed Motes, who played the detective, he was our good family friend. He was um, was a pilot who wanted to be an actor. 
and he is still a pilot. As a matter of fact, uh, he just sent me a DVD, which he just finished, of him flying across the hills and valleys around Sedona uh, from oh, yeah. an airplane and him narrating. But uh, Ed wanted to be in a movie. He came to us. Uh, I don't remember the details, but my dad, of course, was a command pilot in the Air Force, and I was a, a fledgling pilot. And when Ed showed up at the door one night, I think he just knocked at the door, introduced himself, and had he opened his wallet, and all these airplane ratings just kind of unfolded like a picture album out of his wallet. And I, I, you may be wondering where I'm going with this. Well, to him... Uh, he said, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm an airline pilot. And both my dad and I said, wow. But Ed looked at us and he said, but you guys make movies? And we said, well, yeah. And so it was like a wow factor looking in both directions. So I think that Ed put some money up. I don't remember how much, but I'm pretty sure yeah. he invested money into the exotic ones. Probably so he could play one of the major parts and then uh, – also, we ended up owning a couple of airplanes together, and as I mentioned, I still keep in touch with yeah. Ed uh, as recently, like as uh, a month ago. Well, now, in this movie, your father, I believe, plays the head of a gentleman's club in, uh, Lu in Louisiana. That's correct. And in Bayou Country, and your mother actually even has a stint as an exotic dancer uh, in it, and, and, and you're in there as, as their son that befriends some beast that and they coax out of the... Uh, the out of the bayou, the swamp, and I guess the the scene that's most famous is a gentleman who 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 actually is played by the actor Cecil Scaife, I believe uh, his name, Cecil, uh, um, who we'll talk about in a minute, has the distinction of having his arm ripped off by this beast, and then is bludgeoned to death with his own arm. Right, which, right. Which is the which is the thing people never seem to forget about that movie. Oh, there's so many stories associated with with the exotic ones from Monster and Stripper. It's hard to pick one. Uh, for instance, the uh, nightclub was actually filmed inside of Trafco, which at the time was the television, yeah. film, and radio commission of the Methodist Church, and they had no idea that's what we were going to be filming at the time. Here in here in Nashville. Well, later, yes, yeah. later became Jim Owen's studio, so Crook and Chase was filmed exactly, uh, unless it was at the other end of the studio, but uh, where you see the monster, uh, uh, not the bludgeoning scene, but where you see the monster in the cage, if you were in a time machine and went forward from that spot 20 years, you'd see Lorraine Crook sitting there, so okay. that's just kind of interesting. But we should, we should thank the United Methodist for Monster and the Stripper, though, for their contribution. <laughs> They didn't appreciate that, okay. but the uh, the actual story is my dad made a connection with Trafco when he filmed White Lightning Road. At the same time, Smiley Wilson was saying, kind of come up here. My dad said, I need some place to edit, and Trafco was made available to him at an extremely inexpensive rate. Today, if we got an editing suite, which most people do mm -hmm. at home now, for 125 an hour, that would be great. Well, he got his editing suite. Of course, it was just a movieola and my dad for 125 a week. And so he said, oh, okay, I'm coming to Nashville and we'll edit there. That's what brought him to Nashville. And we did edit at Trafco. And then that was the connection where later we said, hey, can we also film a movie here? And they said, well, sure, we'll rent it to you. But then when they looked inside and saw monsters and strippers, <laughs> they said, yeah. wait a minute, uh, we didn't sign up for this. So. Well, you know, uh, I come from a Southern Baptist background, and, and the Methodists don't beat the Southern Baptists on this. The Southern Baptists are responsible for Plan 9 from outer space. 
because I believe they bankrolled that for Ed Wood. What? Uh, and actually insisted that all of the cast members be baptized in a pool. Oh, that, that yeah, I did hear. they made a deal where uh, he would actually film some movies of the Gospels on their behalf if if they would bankroll this little movie project he had. They didn't know any of the details about the movie, but they put the money up. But one of their criteria was all of the lead actors had to be baptized. So Vampira, Tor Johnson, uh, Criswell, all of them were baptized in the swimming pool. Uh, for Plan 9. so must have been a big pool we, of Tor Johnson. We, it was. A big, big splash. Yeah. So we have the Baptists and the, and the Methodists to thank for these great movies. Uh, there's one other quick movie I want to ask you before we get into sort of the, the major okay. Christian influence. Yes? Remind me to tell you an Ed Wood story when you, when you want me to. Uh, well, well, lay it on us now. Oh, okay, well, the Ed Wood story is basically, and I'll be quick because I know we need to segue here, uh, my mom would never go see the movie, you know, the current movie by Timothy Burton, uh, Ed Wood. And I asked her why. She says, because I hate Ed Wood. And I said, why? She said, well, he's a thief. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, back after we did Untamed Mistress, and I do remember in the valley us having a warehouse, uh, and in the warehouse was the gorilla suits, which over the years became moth from Untamed Mistress. And apparently one of them, well, I do remember, it was white. And, of course, I was thinking, oh, wow, I'd like to wear this. But, of course, I was a kid, and you'd have to be, you know, six right. foot or whatever. And so uh, Ed Wood apparently was an acquaintance of my dad, not a friend, and said, hey, can I borrow your gorilla costume? I want to make a movie called White Gorilla. And the way my mother tells it is, so Ed Wood, uh, so your dad, I told your dad that he should lend it, that, but apparently he did lend it to Ed Wood, and Ed Wood never returned it. And, of course, this is, you know, secondhand from my, uh, as I would say in court, hearsay, but nevertheless, it's a good story. So my mother said, I'm not going to see that movie. The uh, the sub-story is I was contacted by a um, a recognized Hollywood producer-director, uh, to do our life story, basically what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But he contacted me just before uh, Ed Wood was uh, getting to, ready to be made. And once it went to into production, he said, well, uh, you know, we're not going to do yours. And so it's yeah. kind of an interesting thing. Wow. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, well, I'm interested in the gorilla suit. We, we've now just broken, I presume, a, a major Hollywood scandal here. And I, I think we scooped entertainment tonight uh, in in this Hollywood scandal. There, there's one other movie that was really interesting uh, before I want to get just into your exclusive Christian movies. But but your father had a real interest, it appeared, in Eastern religions right? and in trying to find the meaning of life. And went over there and found out a lot of things about exotic religions of the Far East and collected that information. And then that information eventually was compiled into a movie itself. Wasn't it called The Sacred Symbol? Right. Now, let me just ask you, are we segueing into the Christian films? I did have one more thing to tell you. Well, tell us before, uh, yeah, before we get in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that continues on the Ed Wood. You had mentioned earlier yeah. that my mother uh, managed the Three Stooges. The way that actually worked was she didn't manage them on the TV series or the movies, which most people would be thinking of, but she did. Oh, I don't know if she did or my dad and she did together, yeah. but they took them on the road on the vaudeville circuit, but not in vaudeville. This was like passage day. The Stooges would go to the theater. They would advertise them. They would get up on stage and do their antics. 
but the where the money was made was after the show was through, they, people would come up and have their picture made with the Three Stooges, and of course they would make the silly faces, and they would pay, you know, X amount of dollars, and uh, we would, and my dad, I guess, was cameraman, he would snap, 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 next, snap, snap, next, and then we would send it to the people, uh, you know, later, as a uh, photo with the Three Stooges. So that's that was their management of the Three Stooges. And yes, mm-hmm. that indeed did happen. That then later, uh, Bela Lugosi, when he was kind of down on his luck, came to my mom and said, or my mom and dad said, could you do something for me like you did for the Three Stooges? And that was when he revealed to my mother that he was addicted to uh, some sort of drug. I don't remember oh, what opium, it was. Right, yeah. And my mother said, uh, I love you, Bela, but no, I, I can't. He, he was asking her, could you get me the drug if we wow. go on the road? And she said, no, I can't. Now, that, now I don't want to cast any ill yeah, on, right. Ed, on Ed Wood. No, not Bela. He just, yeah. you know, he just was uh, addicted. But according to what my mother said, once that happened and she said no, if you look back in history, it was very short, after, very short time after that that Ed Wood took Bela Lugosi under his wing, and then he appeared in Las Vegas, and he did indeed die of an overdose. Uh, that part's true. You know, whether Ed Wood was involved, I don't know. Right. Okay. Hmm. Now, sacred symbol. This uh, ties in to a degree with Untamed Mistress, and it kind of blends the two together, but it's an excellent segue. When my dad made Untamed Mistress, and as you mentioned earlier, B-films were made, and they often looked uh, spliced together from various sources. Well, it's very true. Today, you could buy stock footage, or you could even uh, go to Africa very easily, uh, at least uh, differently than you could in the 50s. Back then... My dad and mom were part of a company called Hauk, Orman, and White, Halco. They made most of the LaRue films. They came to an ending of their association, which isn't important. But the deal was Orman's no longer part of it, but he gets all the footage from Sabu, Law of the Jungle, but he can't use Sabu's likeness. He can only use the story around it. So then they were left with a movie called Law of the Jungle, which had all this interesting footage, but nothing to tie it together. So my dad then thought, well, how can we do that? I know. We'll make Untamed Mistress. We'll use footage that we shoot here. We'll use Sabu, Law of the Jungle. And how am I going to get African footage? My dad's thinking, I guess. And the way he got it was his doctor, his personal physician was a you know an adventurer of the time he went to africa filmed all the african footage gave it to my dad to use in untamed mistress now flash forward to sacred symbol my dad passed away you know i made some films but sacred symbol specifically i thought how can i make a movie around this footage i got that is christian oriented but utilizes all this kind of crazy footage that I have from Untamed Mistress, which is sitting here gathering dust. So I then kind of took what they did in Untamed Mistress and blended it into the movie called Sacred Symbol. But a lot of this was footage he shot in the Far East himself, right? Uh, uh, religious uh, ritual and things like that? That was true. Uh, he he did. Uh, I had forgotten your question because I got sidetracked. Yeah. Yes, he did indeed go to the Far East with 
Warman McGill, uh, the hypnotist, and you can Google him. He passed away just a few years ago. Warman and my dad were originally business partners uh, together in show business. They did, uh, I think they were billed as the two Ormans, and they did magic and, you know, readings and just, you know, put on a show. And then somewhere, I guess, as he was exploring the magic and mystery of life, Together, uh, they thought, you know, it would be nice to go to the origin of where all this mystery comes from, since we're doing magic shows around, you know, the, uh, the levitating girl from Tibet or whatever. And together, they said, let's go to the Orient and track down all this unusual stuff. And they did. And they went to, uh, you know, Vietnam. I mean, places today that are, that people go to every day. Back then, very few people saw them. For instance, Angkor Wat, which is a big tourist yeah. attraction now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, Lowell Thomas, do you remember his yeah. name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I have a picture somewhere of my dad talking to Lowell Thomas uh, on the, um, you know, on a ledge outside of Angkor Wat. So, yes, they did indeed go over there, and later they made a book called Into the Strange and Known, which uh, talked about their tour and what they learned and who they met and how things worked and 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 things like that. So mm. so yes, it did. Well, I, I want to move into the Christian transformation that happened to your family, okay. and I'll, I'll have to leave on the table. I I have to mention a quick thing. Um, little little what our people guess for all the things you've experienced that you were also a roller derby star, <laughs> and that yeah. your and that uh, your dad your dad also produced roller derby, which my yeah. mom watched on TV all the time, and I watched with her on Saturdays and. I don't know. You, I don't know if you were with the San Francisco bomber, Bay Bombers, or any of those ones that we used to watch. But I, I'll give you 30 seconds on that. Uh, my dad was needed a job. Probably we're, he's in between movies. His his good friend was Leo Seltzer, who was the original owner of Roller Derby. He said, "Ron, I'll let you manage the Roller Derby if you need to." So my dad, for a time, managed the Roller Derby, and I loved it because it would meet weekly at the Olympic Auditorium downtown Los Angeles. I loved it. My dad. Dad hated it, but during that time, the children of the roller derby, you know, bombers or whomever, yeah. had the uh, the diaper derby, which is what I was part of, and uh, we just would put on little performances before or at intermission, and it was pretty much it was fun. I had the uniform, yeah. uh, and I did skate on the track, and uh, but we weren't like trying to hit each other. Yeah. Most of those things were staged, but but yeah. yes. Indeed, I was in uh, a form of the Royal Derby, and then finally my dad said, "Leo, I can't do this. I, I, I'm not going to be your friend anymore if I if I yeah. continue to be your employee." So anyway, yeah. so go ahead. Well, um, there there were some close calls that happened in your family. I know uh, uh, a flight from Nashville to Louisville, which is my hometown, uh, to promo one of your films, where the engine went out and led to a crash landing, and then a subsequent emergency landing that, that sort of got your dad's attention. And your your parents really led, led onto the road to the Christ to Christ, and then decided to take their talents in that direction. Can you tell us just briefly a little bit about that? I can. I pause there for just a moment because I I need to get a drink of water. Is that possible? Sure. Pause. Sure. Let me. I, yeah, I was giving you an editing point there. Get you some water here. Uh, All right. I'm gonna just step away for just yeah. like thirty seconds. All right. Be right back. Tom, what do you think about about this over there? You're being quiet. Yeah, I, I, most of the stuff he's talking about, I don't know nothing about. So, yeah, because you're all, a youngster, huh? I'm all like, I don't know. Unlike me, you know, for a guy who's made lots of B movies myself, I know the kind of work that goes involved and what they do. In fact, theirs was a lot more, 
lucrative than, than what I did. But mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> what we're going to find fascinating in this next phase of our discussion is uh, how the Lord can take people from from a background like that who you might come across and think, what would they ever have to do with the Lord? You know, mm. they're they're making they're out to make a fast buck. They're out to make some uh, some cheesy movies, exploit people's. Uh, you know, gee whiz uh, interest in things from on the heat of the moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we see stuff like that go along in society by us all the time. And we think that uh, nothing will, will come of that in those people. But this, their story is going to be a lesson that God uh, never gives up on people and never looks past them. And okay, cool. uh, we're, uh, we're, well, good, good, uh, Tim. We're going to, we, we want to hear a little bit about the, how the Lord, uh, Decided he wanted to use the uh, very unique skills. I, I don't know how many churches would would have wanted you all up to now in their church, but the Lord wanted you in His family. Right. And, you want and, me to pick up with the airplane accident? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you basically. I'll, I'll just leave it there. You had an you you had an accident. Uh, your parents were injured. I mean, it basically disintegrated the airplane. Uh, you were able to go crawl off for help, but uh, that and then another close call. Led them to start rethinking about what the what their purpose was in life, and then decided that the Lord could even use their talents they had in some unique way. Uh, that's pretty much correct. What uh, we had just filmed, finished the movie Tex Ritter. Uh, I'm sorry, Girl from the Back of Row with Tex Ritter. And if you were to watch that movie today, you'd probably see well, you you would see a spiritual element running through it, but. Uh, it was basically Earl Richards who I had mentioned, Smiley Wilson's son-in-law, who played the, uh, you know, the convict, the guy on the run who finally, you know, came to the Lord at the end, not necessarily to be saved, but just, uh, yeah. uh, you know, to to basically say, hey, forgive me, I have right. been doing wrong. Well, um, I don't know if the spiritual thinking of that particular film was weighing on my dad's mind or not. That I never discussed with him, but indeed. On a premiere or on a scheduled premiere in Louisville, Kentucky, as you mentioned, we were going to fly there because my dad and I loved to fly. My mom really didn't much care for it, but, you mm-hmm. know, hey, she, she was with us. Uh, I was, uh, I later became a commercial pilot and flight instructor, but at the time I was uh, learning to fly. And it was a very cold winter morning. I don't remember how cold it was, mm-hmm. but I do remember frost. And my dad and I, and I'm going to paint this very intricately because it's important to uh, his memory to know that we thoroughly checked out the aircraft, mm-hmm. and particularly I did, and that's called the pre-flight. And I was so so enthused with flying, I wasn't going to miss anything. So I checked out everything. We got in the airplane. We cranked it up. Everything was looking fine. And we began to taxi out towards the uh, runway at uh, Nashville International. And I do remember us doing our run-up, and that's where you increase the engine speed and cycle through your magnetos just to make certain there is no, uh, you know, missing in the mm-hmm. engine or anything. And everything seemed fine. We called the tower, asked for, for uh, permission to take off. And I do remember them saying, 5,000 Bravo, cleared for takeoff, to right. And we taxied out into position, uh, gave it full power, headed down the center line. And as we pulled back, everything was fine at that moment. As we reached the point in time where you throttle back just a little bit, that's when we had a first indication. The engine kind of went <coughs> like that. Yeah. But it cured itself immediately, so we thought, well, that's okay. But 
just a moment later, it just stopped, dead stop. We were approximately four to 500 feet heading north out of Nashville towards um, Donaldson. And if you were to go to the current uh, main post office of Nashville, Tennessee, and look towards the airport because it's only like yeah. a mile away, you would – of course, now there's buildings and shopping centers and everything. But if you looked over towards the runway, which you can clearly see, that between the uh, the post office and runway is where we crashed. Now, how it actually happened at that 400 feet uh, level uh, and when the engine stopped, my dad, of course, was a command pilot. We immediately turned back towards the field, and I, rem- I was on the radio, and I said, Nashville Tower, 5,000 Bravo, emergency. Uh, and immediately the first thing they say it's 5,000 Bravo, cleared to land any runway. In other words, airport's yours. Simultaneously, right. they said, uh, American 321. Now, I don't know about the flight number. I'm making that up. Go around. And I have vivid memories of us looking for a place to land and this jet on short final, you know, gear and flat right. down, you know, having to give full power and go around because we then own the airport once we say emergency. Unfortunately, we did not make it back to the field and we barely cleared some high tension wires which were out uh, in mm-hmm. that particular area and in front of us there were not too many options so it definitely had to be god's hands where we put it down because we were out of altitude and my dad chose to land wheels up and we pretty much came into this well not pretty much we came in to this cow pasture with cows and we slammed into the uh, ground uh, not not in a mm-hmm. crash, but in a control crash. But it was at a point on the ground where there was a hump. So instead of landing smoothly, it kind of hit that. And when it hit that, that's when it kind of fractured my dad and mom's back. Mm. And, of course, I was just 16, so I just absorbed it. But what I do remember is looking in front of us as we were crashed, we did have the foresight, or I did at that point, to open the door. Uh, and I don't mean open it wide, but yeah. crack the door so it wouldn't get uh, mangled Damn. to a point. Exactly, jammed. Yeah. And there we were on the ground going full forward, and the airplane started to turn clockwise. I do remember cows around us, and somehow, miraculously, there's no other word for it, we missed the cows as we began. And we had no control now. It's just yeah. God's hand. And our tail severed one fence post pushed over a third fence post, and the and the uh, the next one stopped us. And at that time, it w- had torn the airplane in half, just like a, a ragged uh, tin yeah. can would be torn, just behind where my mother was sitting. Had it been further forward, like even one foot, yeah. uh, it would have torn it across her, but uh, it was just behind yeah. her. And fortunately, the airplane did not catch fire, but immediately... You know, I opened the door, I jumped out, and then I remember pulling them out to safety, yeah. still thinking the airplane could catch on fire, sure. but it didn't. But I remember my dad going, oh, and that was his back because it had been fractured. So I didn't think of that at the moment. I just thought about getting them sure. away, and yeah. I did. And then I ran to get help, got on the phone, called the National Tower, and I said, hey, we're the guys who just crashed. And they said, okay, people are coming. By the time I got back, there were already ambulances. And I yeah. wasn't gone, you know, more than five minutes. Yeah. The only injury I got was crossing a barbed wire fence to get help. Yeah. Now, how did now I could go on about that, but that's not your point. How right. did that lead us into Christ? Well, it didn't lead us from Christ from one day to the next. 
because they were in the hospital and I was in high school and I do remember going back to the uh, scene of the accident later that day and that's when I was scared when I was when right. we were going through it the adrenaline's flowing and you're trying to figure uh-huh. out what the problem is so when we got home uh, or when they got home from the hospital some weeks later I was home the entire time. I don't remember a particular discussion about God at that moment. Later, when we had a second airplane accident, which was not as dramatic, I do remember my mom saying, Ron, you know, maybe God's trying to tell you something. And during that chain of events, and it's, you know, I could be blurring some of this thing from one day or month to the next, my dad got a phone call um, from a gentleman who knew somebody who wanted to make a movie about a sermon, and the sermon was, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? And I pretty much, now at that time, I didn't mm-hmm. really care. I cared about flying again. I didn't really yeah. care about, uh, I wasn't thinking in terms of God. My dad and mom were, of course, because they were up yeah. for years. Uh, but my dad said, well, Perhaps I should go and talk to them. You know, maybe this is God talking to me. Uh, and I'm not quoting him, but it was yeah. you know, that, that feeling. So my dad went to an airport somewhere and met Monty Stanfield, which was an associate or partner or mm-hmm. friend of Estes Perkle. And I don't know how this exactly happened, but the person who put my dad in touch with Monty Stanfield was someone who was a radio announcer, who mm-hmm. you'd have much in common with him, who knew my dad from years past, probably from the uh, vaudeville days, somewhere they crossed paths, and they had kept in touch. Mm-hmm. So apparently Monty Stanfield was preaching as a Baptist would do on a Saturday or Sunday on a local station out in the country. Yeah. And God says! Mm-hmm. And when it was done, they were talking together, and he says, well, you know, I have a guy who's going to preach next week here by the name of Estes Perkle, uh, and he'd like to make a movie out of his sermon, Do You Know of Anybody? This would be just yeah. Monty Stanfield right. conversing. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I do know a movie producer. Uh, his name is Ron Orman. Let me put you in touch with him. So Monty Stanfield called my dad, and I, I'm sure my dad was suspicious at the time, but he said, well, you know, uh, let, let's go check him out. So they met, and I guess Monty Stanfield then reported back to Estes Perkle that, well, he looks okay. You know, he's not a Christian, but he doesn't seem to be the devil, so maybe you should talk to him. Then Estes Perkle and my dad met, and I'm pretty sure that was at the Shreveport Airport, Mm -hmm. and they decided, okay, we can work together. Now, at that particular time, Estes apparently was famous within his circles for for his sermon, if footmen tire you, what will horses do? But it wasn't a book. It wasn't anything but a sermon. And so he thought... Let me put this sermon on film, and in his mind, it was just going to be him preaching mm-hmm. for an hour his sermon, as he would do at any church on a Sunday. But that's, my, that's not the Orman way, though, is it? That's not the Orman way. <laughs> and my dad then convinced him in saying, hey, we need to dramatize this. And then that led to some of the scenes which have become infamous over time, and that you're referring to the uh, Cecil Scape as the commissar and, and the little boy well, vomiting and the head being cut off and all the rest of it. If, if it had just been somebody behind a uh, pulpit preaching, that film would have been lost to history. 
and it would not have become the most amazing Christian movie ever filmed in my book. Well, that's quite an analogy. I don't. I, I think possibly uh, it's on YouTube. If I'm not, yeah, I know it's on YouTube yeah. because I, I mentioned to you that I, I meet uh, semi-weekly uh, with a prayer group, and we were talking about the Footman of oh, some months ago. And I said, well, I think it's on YouTube, and so I went and searched for it, and there it was. I didn't put it up there, but somebody put the entire film on YouTube. Uh, so now you that that movie right now is having its 40th anniversary, is it not? Uh, let me think of the year. Uh, 71, was it not? That sounds correct. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, now, I, I have not over the years kept in touch with the Perkle family. We ended up having a parting of the ways. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know what's being done concerning the anniversary. I'm not part of it. Yeah. I can't offer you any thoughts concerning it. Uh, it's It's instrumental. It's spiritual. It's uh, eventful. But I don't know what is being done to celebrate its 40-year anniversary, possibly but, something, possibly not. But the, the thing is, the Orman touch, the Orman view of, of cinema, cinematography and, and, your, and your way of putting visually on screen images, when you went and applied it to your, your Christian convictions, it had something that was unforgettable. Well, that's where I guess the term God's exploitation may have originated. Now, whenever someone gives you a task, be it a film or a radio broadcast or uh, building a bookcase, you would take the talents that you have and use them to the best of your ability uh, to, you know, finish the project. I believe my dad would have thought to himself, well, even though we need the money, I don't want to make a movie with just some guy preaching. I want to give it something special. And, of course, Estes Perkle, and I have nothing negative to say about Estes. Yeah. I, I, you know, God bless him. He's with God now. Uh, he would have thought, well, I don't know anything about making a movie, so I'll go with whatever you say. And that led to uh, – but now Estes, what he did was he was able to ga- gather all his parishioners, and that's why some of the acting is so bad. Uh, they weren't actors, but he wanted them – they would like donate some money and they would they act in the movie or they sit in the pews or they'd get the horses or they'd do dinner on the ground or the, 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 right. little, uh, the right. little the little boy, uh, Jesus, I can picture the scene. One day you died for me, now I'm willing to die for you. I can remember him reading it so badly, but... I believe uh, that was his son, I believe, that, that played that, it. That, that was his son, yeah. and I have nothing negative to say about him or the son yeah. uh, or the movie. He's a lawyer now, so I'm basically making certain everyone knows <laughs> I have nothing but good memories of the Perkle family. We've got that very clear on the record now, okay. Tim, so you can relax. Uh, but, <laughs> yes, I do remember uh, I learned a lot on that film. It was really my first uh, film to be behind the camera, even though I was in front of the camera for one scene, that was just because I was there and we needed an actor and I could do it. That was the. Uh, it was a it was a very gentle Christian moment where you were asked to shoot your mother yes, because yes. she was a, a diseased animal, if exactly. I remember correctly. Uh, pretty much. What What is interesting uh, was. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's always tales. Uh, that was Gene McFall who played opposite me. Who was late, who was actually in the exotic ones. Uh, he played Bug Eye Baroni. And it, so, uh, my dad used him because he was a good actor. He was, he would later, uh, be on, uh, the barn dinner theater where he was, uh, reenacting Mark Twain and he did yeah. a great job. But anyway, he was a good actor. And that scene between us at the, in the movie, you'll say, 
you know, uh, take this gun and kill your mother and uh, whatever the line is. And, of course, the scene pretty much ends there. But in real life, we looked at one another and there was a lot of strain. And, we, of course, the actors are waiting for my dad, to, me being one of them, waiting for my dad to say, cut. And he didn't. And he didn't. And he didn't. And, of course, an actor, you're supposed to hold right. And finally, we looked at one another, and I think uh, Gene would have crossed his eyes or something, and we both bust out <laughs> laughing and look over at my dad, and then he laughed, too. He said, all right, cut, cut, cut. And so he had done that purposely to kind of break the tension yeah. of figuring that we would. Uh, well, uh, let, let, let me make sure our listeners understand clearly the premise of the movie. The sermon of Estes Perkle was that uh, there was a danger of communism at the time that was taking over much of the world and that Christians were suffering in those lands, and that in America, American Christians were basically succumbing to just the low-level, what you call footmen, like the Bible says, this is out of a Bible passage, footmen of low-level temptations and sidetracking them from their Christian convictions with watching TV rather than reading the Bible, participating in lewd music and dancing and not being faithful in church attendance and those things. And because they were being unfaithful in those matters or the footmen, there were bigger enemies coming behind them that they would be exposed to, i.e. a a takeover. In fact, he mentions uh, Fidel Castro coming and taking over America. And so these are all vignette scenes in between his preaching where he's giving some kind of statistics of how many millions were killed in these different countries and how quickly they could take over our country. Uh, You all uh, actually dramatize what happens, and you see scenes that are absolutely unforgettable. And, And I grew up in a very small Southern Baptist church in Louisville, Kentucky, and the churches in in your movie look just like the churches I grew up. And all the women with their hair piled up on top of their head and, and you know, uh, the people in the real, uh, you know, old-fashioned clothing and things, that was the kind of thing I was used to. And hearing the piano and the organ playing, you know, softly and tenderly or whatever. And to see these people farmed out of a church, you know, with guys with guns and summarily executed uh, or, you know, all sorts of incidents like that occurring was was surreal. I guess that would be the best way I would describe it as surreal. Uh, to see something from my childhood and visions and images like that, I mean, that I still have old, you know, Polaroids of, of people looking like that in my church, you know, when we'd have right. Sunday school and, and to actually see that happening, it was, it was shocking. And, 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 and while it was, you know, campy and quaint after 40 years, it also was something that was really jarring. Because a lot of people do a lot of talking, but that's the power of cinema. When you see something like that, you may at first think, well, that's crazy, that's over the top. But there's something that really grabs you because it becomes real. And I have read books like Tortured for Christ by Reverend Wormbrand and read read of uh, the martyrs that sacrifice for their faith. But when you bring it to our culture and then you see it visually, it changes the ballgame. So while there's a lot of camp and all this kind of stuff, and you see the old-fashioned dialogue and clothing and the bad acting and all the other kind of stuff going on, there there was something on multiple levels that really works with your, the Ormond Christian films like this. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, Footman, I, I, I love life, and I, I, I trust God will allow me to stay here for many more years. But I look forward to going to heaven and meeting all the people who have uh, been won to Christ through that film and other films worldwide. So what you say is great. Movies, 
are designed to touch your emotions either positively or negatively in that uh, or or both but to reach a purpose i worked with dave ute of the bill rice ranch to make a movie called when silence speaks and i remember him saying as he said to me tim as you and i are sitting here trying to think of all the good scenes we can come up there's another set of people sitting out there thinking of all the evil scenes they can come up with to manipulate people. And although he may have been, uh, you know, over-dramatizing, uh, you know, it's true. I mean, the movie is a powerful medium. Uh, it's gotten certainly more sophisticated over the years. And I believe one of your um, questions you wanted me to think about was, would that film have the same impact today? Yeah. And I would have to say, not if it was produced like that, uh, but... Yes, I mean, America is in dire straits in so many ways, and I, I do believe we should turn back to God. I don't know if it would be communism or the economy or yeah, any number right. of things that could make that happen, uh, but I do believe a movie like that, but not necessarily the same, yeah. could touch people, but it would have to be – I mean, you have to realize – Think back in time from Jesus to now and think of the technology that has happened yeah. and the fact that both good and evil or good and secular would be a better word of saying it. Um, let's just say Christian and secular have used that technology to reach the masses. So uh, the printing press, uh, mm -hmm. movies, video, the Internet. Uh, I have a good friend who's a pastor in Nashville uh, who runs Crosspoint uh, Church. Got a big ministry. Uh, look him up, crosspoints.tv, uh, and his name is Pete Wilson. And he, I knew him when he was 16, and we became uh, we became good yeah. friends. He went on to become a great pastor. He uses video, Twitter, Facebook, right. uh, blogging to reach you know thousands of people across uh, certainly in this area, if not uh, worldwide. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of using the elements that God gives you. While you're here on earth, who knows a hundred years from now, if, you know, if the Lord doesn't come, right. what we'll be using to reach people for Christ. Well, I, I want to touch some of the things about putting those in perspective toward the end here. But I got a few more questions to ask you about this movie and some of your other ones. All right. What were some of the scenes in Footman that you found most unique or memorable? Even including some, you know, behind the scenes kind of facts. Oh, well, behind the scenes, of course, you, you'll get me off on tangents again if we go on that. Now, re realize, I was more involved both from a uh, spiritual standpoint and a technical aspect on the burning hell. On Footman, I had just kind of come into the game, so I was uh, kind of like in amazement also, uh, although I did have a background. This was my first film to be technically involved. Uh, I remember my dad uh, there on that hot summer day, uh, walking up to that child who ended up vomiting. That wasn't a special effect. He did indeed throw up. <laughs> and he got uh, it on camera. Huh? <laughs> and we, well, the way he got it on camera was he walked, and he told me later, he walked up to the kid, and of course it was hot, and I think they had just had lunch, yeah. and my dad, dad knew that, so he was kind of pressing on his stomach, <laughs> hoping, hoping to make him sick. And I believe he told me, you go ahead and roll the camera. And then I guess my dad, as we saw him getting ready to throw up, he stepped out of frame, and then we got the scene that you're referring to. That's really sacrificing for your art. <laughs> I mean, that, I've heard of tough directors historically, you know, that could break women, you know, so they crown camera, but 
pressing on a child's stomach to make them vomit. I, I figured having the bamboo shoved right in his ears would have done it. But but you know that this is unless someone has seen it, it's hard to imagine. And our, and our Futurians watch some pretty amazing things because of the subject matter we we talk about on our show. So they're a pretty steely kind of group. But but when you see churches just let and machine gun down, and you see the bullets ripping through them, and and this was something you know shot 1971. You you see uh, Christians lined up and having loudspeakers saying you know Christianity is bad, communism is good, over right. and over again. Uh, you see the children indoctrination in the room where they 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 they're told to pray for Jesus to bring them candy. To right. see if if God will bring them candy or not, right. and uh, and no candy comes when they pray to their glorious leader Fidel Castro. All sorts of candy comes in. Oh yeah, I this, had forgotten that scene until you said it. You know, I, I read about this kind of stuff, uh, like in Tortured for Christ and books when I was young, when the communists were taking over in Eastern Europe and things like this. But to see it dramatized in an American context was really a major breakthrough. This movie was. Uh, uh, was just a very unique expression of um, uh, territory that hadn't been covered in a Christian yeah. context. And uh, uh, the actors that you had, the music that was created, do you know where that music came from, your theme song? Which we uh, yeah, play a little yeah, excerpt yeah. at the beginning here of our show. But uh, it will, No, we'll definitely have an echo of the beginning. Uh, yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to, look, I'd have to watch Footman again, but I believe the... Yeah. yeah, that's from um, uh, one of our earlier movies, Untamed Mistress, or one of the really. I really? don't know. I don't know which one. I'm saying that. So I, I'd, I'd yeah. have to go listen to it again. To re- or, but yeah, it, it was in our um, it was in our stock library. Uh, w- one of those tracks. I don't know if it's this one, so, and I don't want to yeah. go on record of saying it. But Henry Mancini, before he was <laughs> quote unquote Henry Mancini. Yeah. Did the music for one of our early films? Oh, okay, uh, and and that might be the music you're alluding to, Which, but I'm not. I'm not going to say it is. It's so it's so distinctive. Yeah. And, and uh, there's so many scenes I could point out that are amazing, with the children being taken away from their parents on their front porch and and driven off in the truck and things. But but I tell you, the thing that really touches me, and this just shows what a softy I am. Um, for, for all of its old-fashionedness and campiness and things, the altar call at the end still, you know, moistens my eyes. Right. When well, I see was... an old-fashioned Christian altar call like that, it still has a timeless impact. Yes, I, I have to agree with you. Uh, that The actress was Judy Creech, and I, I've not seen her, um, you know, since those days, but... Uh, she was a great actress, but yet I believe she was actually touched by the circumstances. And I don't remember at that particular moment, thinking back 40 years, whether she was a Christian or not. I, I, I can't answer that. Yeah. But but I hope that she is now. Was she a Nashville-based person? I don't remember how they met her. Uh, I do remember I was uh, very taken by her at the time. She was a little older than me, but not much. Just older, just older enough for me to say, "Wow, she's nice." Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but but that was not uh, the, those feelings were not returned. Yeah. But uh, she was. Uh, she worked at the Barn Theater, and my dad and mom saw her, but I don't remember the details yeah. of how they got her. But I, I have to agree with you. Those scenes. If they were reenacted today, maybe with a different theme than communism, um, but uh, how? But but in a in a better, more 
spectacular way, they could be very touching. And yet, by being spectacular, maybe that takes away from the yeah. the impetus of the point. It's hard. It's hard to make that the charm. Point. Yeah, the charm yeah. of it. Yeah, at, at the level that it's at. You know, I found some really cutting edge statements in and Reverend Perkle's sermon even. Um, including some points he made that you would not hear about today. They would be controversial today, where he says that if America would not repent at the time, that God would not be obligated to bless it further. Even though America had a lot of Christians, and American Christians just assume they innately would, would keep God's blessing. You know, as an, as a Christian, quote, Christian nation, you know, and had done so much missionary work, and that God would move elsewhere. And he, I think he even mentions Indonesia or some of these other countries as places where, uh, which is really a denial of American exceptionalism in God's eyes that, you know, God will move on. We are not like Israel, you know, that we right. have some eternal covenant. Uh, if, if we step aside, he, he will go on without us. Um, and then, and then, uh, the whole thing he brings up that most American Christians do not believe that they are going to have to suffer because the rapture is going to call them out and they won't have to experience any suffering. And he makes the point that, you know, what about all the other Christians in the rest of the world that have been suffering and persecuted all along anyway? Mm -hmm. And that they could be really deceived. And even in the American church today, most of the emphasis is on wealth and prosperity and on becoming self-fulfilled and complete. And they look at the rapture as a way that there couldn't be any persecution come to the church prior to that. And, and I find that that's a controversial, controversial message even today. Uh, very much so. I do remember, well, I never live my life like the rapture is going to come. Uh, I try, I, let me rephrase that. I always strive to live my life like the rapture could come tomorrow, yeah. but I don't have any expectation of it happening in my lifetime. It may and right. it may not. Uh, but didn't Paul actually uh, you know, think that it was going to happen. I mean, hasn't every generation thought it's going to happen yeah. soon? I mean, that's, I think that's just us being people, uh, that, that we look towards Jesus coming because it would be like such a wonderful event. But instead, we need to look towards, you know, living our lives mm-hmm. as close as we can as with Jesus as our example. Mm-hmm. And bearing fruit for the kingdom. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's just an attitude of arrogance of thinking we're Americans. We can't experience any of that. God will bail us out when we know our other Christian brethren around the world have certainly been exposed to that. Well, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you what verse this is, but it's a very uh, common one. It rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, you can probably tell me where that comes from. But, I mean, after 9-11, uh, after I went through the Ashland City floods of last year, I realized that, you know, even though we're God's children, it doesn't mean we're going to walk through the world unscathed. Uh, that's mm-hmm. you know, part of our learning, and we have, to, we have to keep our eye on the prize if we're going to, you know, accomplish good in, this, in our lifetime. And that's, that's what I think all, we should yeah. all strive to do. I, I, Tim, uh, somebody I want to ask you about in, in your movies, who's actually one of your main repertory players in your movies, and has now become really one of my favorite actors, period. Uh, I, I always love to see him in your movies, is a gentleman named Cecil Scaife. I love him. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him? He he has an incredibly prestigious background, particularly his connection to Nashville here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and I what his role, how, how he got involved with your productions? Uh, yeah, uh, C- Cecil uh, was a great and close friend of my dad's and a good friend of mine 
and he only passed away just a few years ago. But during the time that you're referring to, he was a music publisher, and the illustrious background, of course, true. But when I um, I remember many times visiting him, I, I, I'm not sure the publishing company. It may have been Tree. It may have been something else. But I remember just dropping in on Music Row, and I, 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 he was like vice president or president of, of whatever company I'm referring to. And I remember thinking how cool it was that I could just walk in, just open the door, walk in, and there was a secretary expecting, you know, uh, yeah. Joe, Joe Broadway looking for a music deal. I said, hey, is Cecil in? And they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's back there, and I'd walk in. And I just, I just went into chit chat because he was such a family friend. Later, uh, he started his own company called Music Incorporated, and uh, he did Christian music, and my dad did the voice of Santa Claus, so that's just a, a complete. Huh. But Cecil loved to be an actor. He was a music publisher, but he wanted to be an actor. That is probably the attraction between my dad and he. Yeah. Now, how they originally met, that I don't know, well, uh, but they became fast friends. And the first movie um, that Cecil was in, let me think here, um, I, I, he was on a chain gang. I'm, I'm trying to bring this to my mind. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe Girl from the Back of Row. Uh, maybe another one. I can't bring that first one to mind. Yeah. But my dad would always call Cecil up and say, "Hey, uh, do you want to be in a? You want to do a part in this one?" He said, "Oh yeah." And that went from the secular films, which I can't remember which yeah. one. I think he was called Dolly uh, in the movie. I'm, I'm talking about. He was referring to someone called Dolly. It may have been. Uh, no, 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 no. It was. Uh, it was the exotic ones uh, because he got his arms torn off. Yeah, so Cecil Scaife got his arms torn off. So that was yeah, and beat to death with his and, own arm. And beat to death with it. Uh, and then as we moved into Christian films, Cecil was a Christian. And, he, of course, he just followed uh, right along. We always had a part for Cecil. And uh, I used him in my uh, film, The Second Coming. He played uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Uh, he was in Sacred Symbol. He played uh, an adventurer. He was in pretty much every one of my dad's movies. And then after my dad passed, he made a movie, which is kind of infamous, uh, maybe not as infamous as Plan 9 from Outer yeah. Space, but in that direction called Hollywood Beach Murders. I was not part of the production crew, although my mother did get to play a nice part, and she was paid scale. And I want to thank huh. Cecil publicly, uh, and uh, one day I'll, I'll thank him in heaven for giving my mom uh, a nice, juicy part You know, later in her life. She enjoyed it. So he was a great friend. Well, from what I know of him, and this is what makes your story all the more amazing, is I believe he was something like a promotions manager for Sun Records, I believe. Sun Son, yeah, that's and right. so he was the guy promoting Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and all these guys. I mean, he was the main guy who was their rep. Uh, he was in the center of the country music business. Right. And, in fact, um, he, <laughs> very few people in Nashville, I think, really know this side of him, what we're talking about, because, as I understand it, he was the one who helped found the School of Music Business at Belmont University. The, the major Baptist university here in town. Right. And it was actually, it was actually done through him. I think Mike Kerb, who's a, a big wig in country music here, worked Kerb. with him in that. Kerb Records? Yes. Uh, uh, but that Cecil Scaife was the guy. Now they have a Cecil Scaife Award that they give every year, uh, for uh, people who have major impacts. I think Winona Judd just got it, like last year or something like that. 
Well, here's a little interesting uh, caveat. Uh, his son, Joe Scaife, who would later in life graduate from Belmont Music and be one of the producers on uh, 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 Achy Breaky Heart, was on the crew for uh, Footman. Really? Yeah, so that's a little side note there. Well, I think probably no one knows that. Well, the, the, the separate community of people that know him in his alternative universe for his movies uh, recognize his indecipherable accent he has. Oh, yeah. In, in Footman, where they don't know if it's Russian, Cuban, what kind of accent, uh, but uh, even plays a drunken uh, soldier that comes in uh, to take a man's wife, who ends up being played by his daughter. Yeah, Laquita Scaife. I've kept in touch with her. Haven't talked to her for a while, but we used to keep in touch for yeah. a long time. Uh, I knew all the Scaife. Uh, let me think. Uh, Laquita, LaKayla, LaRon. Sharitha, uh, the wife, and then Joe. It was kind wow. of it was kind of funny. Well, we all used to make a joke about that. I highly recommend all of our Futurian listeners get not only a Footman Tire, What Will Horses Do, but also uh, the other movies. The Grim Reaper is one where he stars right. as a father who refuses um, to recognize his spiritual needs of leading his family spiritually with dire consequences. But um, he is so special. He is a treasure on what you've brought just to get to watch him and his sometimes hammy, over-the-top, but always interesting acting at Cecil Scaife. And, um, yeah. He deserves a star on Hollywood, if you, if you ask me. Hey, how did movies like Footman and The Burning Hell, the one that you starred in and played a prominent role, um, how did they have an impact on audiences, including well, Decisions for Christ, both nationally and internationally? Uh, I can't speak for Footman because, as I mentioned, I really wasn't a Christian then, so I didn't yeah. really care. But uh, the uh, the financial success of Footman proved that it was being shown in many, many places. And that, and when I say financial, I'm not talking about millions, but I'm talking about it made us money back and then yeah. some. Enough for Estes then to want to make the burning hell. That I can speak of with some more authority. Uh, the burning hell... And of course, I won't know. Like well, well, let me let me just tell our listeners these okay. these bloody, shocking, horrifying movies were shown in churches. Oh and yeah, they, and they were advertised in churches, and it actually stunned people when they watched it. And my understanding is the altars were filled oh, when they right. were when they were shown throughout, particularly throughout the South. That's very true. I can't speak for the entire country, but The Burning Hell has been translated into Spanish and Portuguese that I know of. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm you know, no longer associated with it. But I personally, before that time came when I was no longer associated, not only did I act in it uh, and uh, serve behind the scenes as uh, lighting and things like that, uh, and then I went out, my dad and I both went out to... Uh, churches, auditoriums all over the place, and would show the movie, and we saw firsthand people get up out of the audience uh, before it was even over and uh, come up to the altar. Not to mention when the altar call was given, uh, people would just come up in droves to either uh, accept Christ or rededicate their life. I can't say I spoke with each one of them. But uh, I spoke with, with many, and from what I have heard, and I can't uh, say this with an authority, uh, that over a million people came to Christ uh, through the burning hell. But as I said, I don't know the, uh, uh, you know, the accuracy of that. Over, over a million people. That's what I've heard. If it was anywhere close to that, 
Just think about how many megachurches haven't even led a fraction of those people to the Lord. Yeah. Uh, I do remember taking the burning hell in Spanish with Tim Green, who you mentioned talking right. with, uh, down to Mexico on a mission trip years and years ago, and us showing it on a sheet in a back like parking lot area and wooden outside park benches, a generator running to projector, a sheet or a white bleached wall, I don't remember which, mm-hmm. and um and uh, to, to Mexicans and at the and at giving an altar call, of course there was someone there who spoke Spanish. Everyone thought I spoke Spanish because in yeah. the movie I did. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> People would walk up to me afterwards, uh, and you know, <laughs> uh, and I'd say, no, no, I don't speak Spanish. But yeah. but then they point to the movie. But uh, yeah, and people would come forward there. So that was a great soul saving in Denver. And people, of course, would criticize, well, you're scaring people into religion. And then the other side of that was I'd rather be uh, hell scared than hell burnt. I forget who said that. Yeah. But, uh, no, it was a – I have nothing but positive memories of the burning hell uh, up to the point where I no longer did, which I mentioned to you. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that movie is still being shown in Africa today. Isn't it real popular there in places like this? Uh, Tim Green could give you a better uh, – yeah better numbers on that uh, because I have lost touch with that. But I do know that it was being shown in Nigeria uh, to amazing groups of uh, uh, Nigerians. Uh, that was from years ago. I can't speak for what it's doing today. Yeah. But I don't – well, it, it, it would be – I can see where in Africa would be ripe. Uh, and uh, I presume you're talking about more of the uh, third world African areas mm-hmm. as opposed to like Johannesburg or something, which would be pretty right. much industrialized. I, I don't doubt that it is, but I don't know the numbers uh, right. for today, only for the years that I was involved with it. And yes, it did affect people emotionally. And yes, I saw them, you know, uh, you know, screaming and crying and running to the altar and not waiting for the invitation and lives being changed. Yeah, all that's true. That's the power of the cinema. If it's properly used. Exactly. Um, Now, The Burning Hell was your most popular movie uh, that you had. And some of the things that I really noticed in it was I thought you had a really cool goatee. Your little beard, you know, and like your jacket with the fringe was really I thought that look worked for you, by the way. Well, just, thanks. Uh, I don't look like that now. Okay. Well, I just I I just thought that was pretty cool looking, and I thought your co-host, your 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 other biker buddy, who I Chuck guess he Howard. was, yeah, I think he was decapitated early in the movie. I'm pretty sure he was a record producer. Then how my dad knew him. Uh, he he wouldn't have been uh, too much out of character uh, for for his lifestyle, as I remember. I can't say that I knew yeah. him uh, like like the movie would show. I think I probably just met him on the day of the shoot, and he was just you know, playing it up wild. But, uh, yeah, I remember his name, Chuck Howard. Well, he was a classic tough guy. I mean, he had that down perfect. Um, but now your scenes in hell that you had, and, and I don't know if you shot these at the same time with the burning hell, and I, I guess you did, uh, um, I don't know if he maybe used the footage later again in The Grim Reaper, but there were the, the hell scenes that were done with the flames coming up and the soot on people. Those, oh, yeah. those were real tires that were on fire. Oh, that people were standing around in the middle of, right? That, that was the, the one thing I will give credit to Estes for. My dad would dream up some of this stuff, and I do remember them talking about hell and thinking, well, you know, there's not gonna, they're not going to be wearing any clothes, you know, if they're in hell. <laughs> well, we can't 
show naked people. That's not going to work. Well, there's not going to be a light in hell. Well, we got to have light because we got to photograph them. This was, well, they, then they came up with, well, you know, let's let's be as realistic as we can within the scope of being um, palatable to you know the world and not, not showing it you know in a yeah. pornographic nature. So there was a. Um, uh, oh, a rock, well, it's not a rock quarry, but it was this area that was just nothing but red clay. And in the daytime, the exact same spot in the burning hell is maybe over to the left, 100 yeah. yards, where we did the Korah-Moses confrontation. And you remember probably, uh, mm-hmm. if you saw the movie, red clay. It's the same area, but over to the yeah. right. He had his parishioners out there digging these big pits, and we indeed filled them with rubber tires and... Um, I don't remember how we got them lit, probably with kerosene, but once they lit, they burned for hours. And what we didn't know until later in the night, maybe not even until the morning, was as they burned, the rubber particles would go up into the air and then fall back down. Uh We didn't see it, but when we were through for the night, I looked at my mother, and she was covered with black dust. The camera was covered. It took us days to uh, clean huh. up after that shot. Well, you know, it's because I you you had similar scenes in your later movie, The Grim Reaper, right? Uh, correct. Um, that is the same technique that was used on one of the most famous album covers in country music history. There was an album by the Leuven Brothers called Satan Is Real, where they actually have them standing in the flames of hell. And didn't they not, uh, Tom, use the same techniques? They having a bunch of burning tires. Close, yeah, pretty that much. That they stood it. in front of. Yeah. Man, a bunch of burning tires and a couple other things. Yeah. And yeah, well, which is probably good. one of the most famous country music uh, things ah, for well, for a religious theme. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that. The little camera trick we used uh, was, I mean, everything we said is correct. The tires were there. I mean, hundreds of tires were there in trenches, spaced out into the into the night. And, of course, I would go put lights out there low to give that ominous look. But then right in front of the camera, I'm talking about like inches away from the lens, we had a tray filled with sand and like lighter fluid or kerosene that we would set on fire to give that illusion that the fire was right there and they were in the midst of it. In the uh, foreground, yeah. In the foreground, exactly. Yeah. But other than that, no, they were out there and... uh, uh, you know, we had real maggots in the ears and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and on an Ormond religious movie, when, when you see, like, the old classic stuff with the children of Israel, you see snakes come up and bite people when they disobey or they fall down in the earth or you have maggots crawl on people. I mean, you get your money's worth. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I got snake stories and I got core rebellion stories. I mean, we could go on for yeah. uh, lots more time if we wanted to. Yeah, well... Uh, I, um, I I want to ask you about how this affected your spiritual life. You said the burning hell actually sort of brought you, now that you're entering adulthood, to, to really embrace Christ in your own terms. Exactly. Well, I left between – when the footnote was made, I could care less. I just made a movie, and it was interesting. As I told you, I more or less – I was more interested in Judy Creech than I was in uh, yeah. you know, what it was going to do for the Lord at that time. It was just a fun – and then I left town – on a kind of sabbatical, you know, to right. coming of age, and that's another story which I won't go into. But then when I next talked to my dad, of course, I'm sure we kept in touch, but he said, hey, I got another movie to do for that Perkle guy, and we're going to go to Israel, and uh, we're going to be with a bunch of Baptists, uh, but it could be interesting, and I could use you. 
And I thought, well, that'd be cool, a trip to Israel. And I said, okay, well, that sounds good. So I think I was out in the West Coast or Oregon or somewhere just, uh, you know, living life and deciding what I wanted to do. So then I started my journey back to Nashville. And then when I got home and, you know, reunited and we talked, uh, it turned out that, yes, indeed, Footman had made uh, its return on investment, and Estes wanted to do another picture called The Burning Hell, and it would be, uh, you know, some of it would be shot in uh, Israel, and uh, we needed to go over there, and, um, you know, I want you to come, I need a right-hand man, and all that sort of stuff. So I went re- I went both enthusiastically and reluctantly, enthusiastically because I still am, uh, I love adventure, uh, uh, but I, cautiously because I was thinking, oh boy, this is going to be a real drag, I'm going to be stuck in the bus with a bunch of, uh, you know, Baptist preachers, I said, man, I don't know what yeah, this is going to be like. Yeehaw. Yeah, yeehaw, exactly. But instead, that's where I met Tim Green who was my age, and as you know, he and I, this many years later, are still friends, and he's the missionary that I support, and I do his website, timgreenministries.org, got to get that out there, and so Tim and I became friends, and I realized, well, this this isn't so bad, and then I began to realize that these people are uh, not just, uh, you know, talking the talk, but they're walking the walk, and I began to look at things slightly differently, uh, cause I realized I wasn't like saying, hey, I want to be like them, but I just said, well, you know, I, I, I'd always been spiritual, because as you mentioned, my dad was, yeah. uh, looked, looked into far eastern things, and I grew up never having doubt that there was a God, uh, just having a doubt of whether you got there by being a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu. Um, but I began to see these people, and uh, and th- this was during uh, the the best times of being associated with uh, Estes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We were on an adventure, and we were seeing Israel, and we were in the old city. And then we went to uh, Santa Canarina. Ma- uh, we, we went to Mount Sinai, uh, and we spent yeah. the night at Santa Canarina Monastery. And, of course, there's Mount Sinai. Oh, my God, that's where God <laughs> spoke to Moses. And, and my dad said, well, you know, that's where they say. And so I said, i got to go up there. And he said, well, go ahead, uh, look around, and I will venture that there is a path that the uh, devotees over the years have, uh, yeah. you know, because uh, he, he learned this in, the, in India. They always build a path to the sacred shrine. So I, so I went out there and I looked around with a couple of the other guys, and by now I'm friendly with everybody. Still distant because I don't know that I want to be necessarily, uh, you know, a Baptist or anything, but, uh, you know, they're, they're all right people. So I find the path and we go up to the top of Mount Sinai, and that was an adventure, which is a story in itself. And I, I, and when I came down, we had to, and I had a walkie-talkie with me, so I could mm-hmm. talk to my dad from the top. And he's in Santa Canarina Monastery, and I'm on the top of Mount Sinai, and I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, God may have spoke to Moses right here or somewhere within yeah. this vicinity." And that was a pretty monumental thought just to have, no matter whether you're a Christian or not. Just to think, you know, if you believe in God at all, you think. Man, God manifests Himself right here. Uh, yeah, maybe it could happen yeah. again. All those thoughts are running through your mind. Uh, Were you like 23 or 24 at this time? Uh, 23. 
And so when I came back down, the sun was setting. We had to rush, and we had to get down before they closed the gates uh, because they locked the gates mm-hmm. every night. If we don't get back by a certain time, uh, you know, we'd be locked outside uh, Santa Catarina Monastery for the night, which we didn't want. So we made it back in time, and um, that was an adventure, but it was a, a monumental adventure to me. Now, at that particular moment, I didn't accept Christ, but it kind of planted the seed. Uh, then we flew back. This was just my dad, Estes, yeah. myself, and uh, probably our guide uh, and and the pilot. And we went back then to Jerusalem the next day and continued our filming and at um, uh, where you pe- see those people singing at the front. But where is that? Uh, I, can't, I can't think of. Uh, yeah. Now this was right around the time of the Yom Kippur War. Within yeah, within a I, year either side of it. I do remember the pilot not speaking English. And when we were flying in a small plane, Cherokee 6, uh, I pointed over to the left and I said, uh, uh, Jordan? He says, he says, yes. And he said, you know, jets, jets. He couldn't say English. He was, he, yeah. he was, ba- he was basically saying, yeah, we need to be careful. Wow. So we went back and we filmed and I met people and I had a good time. And we came back to America. Uh, we began making the film. And, of course, I was the actor. And I had those memories that were filling my soul of, well, these aren't bad guys and they believe and maybe yeah. they got something. Now, I, I'm trying to kind of get to the end. Yeah. Because I think we're running out of time. Are yeah. We, are we not? Yeah. Well, so on a second trip to Israel uh, for actually the believer's heaven, uh, then I went up to Mount Sinai a second time and spent the night on top of Mount Sinai Wow! with a uh, three or four preachers, one of them being Edgar Pascal, who was, uh, I'm just saying his name, yeah. he hears us. And, that's a, a, and a thunderstorm happened during the night, and as we were having a prayer meeting, uh, that's when I really trusted Christ. And it was just basically a, a monumental moment, and God, you know, I realized... You know, God is here. He doesn't have to be on the top of Mount Sinai, but for me, maybe it did, and that's where I trusted Christ. But that that is a very unique place for someone yeah. to say they met Christ on yeah. top of Mount Sinai. It, it really is, and I could draw out the story, but I think you're wanting yeah. me to get to the end, aren't you? Well, uh, you know, Moses, he uh, he could say that, and Paul, and you. You know, uh, Paul had his big experience in Tim Mormon, so that's a pretty exclusive group. Uh, that's had that kind of experience. I, I, I want to just summarize a, uh, a couple of your, your your films and then ask you something looking to the future. Okay. Um, I really recommend The Grim Reaper to our listeners um, because it, it really gets into spiritual warfare. And you actually see that people who are involved in New Age activities, it actually shows some New Age guys that have the same techniques today as were shown in that movie. The same kind of answers, the same kind of responses, and and you play a preacher who actually gives the right answer to these guys, and really confronts them appropriately. But it shows that not all of it is fakery. While a lot of it is, as your character in that movie mentions, some of it's fakery where they where they're scamming people, and some of it's real and it's and it's demonic. Oh, and, I believe in demons. And it shows it very very realistically in the in in the movie within the you know the capabilities that you had in that day before CGI and everything. Right. You do some pretty amazing stuff that that is really consistent with some of the writers back in the age of spiritualism, Christian writers like George Pember and others, how they described those real kind of spirit contact events occurred. It's it's very realistic in in your movie. 
and, and, and it even uh, has an organ playing by Henry Slaughter, which is a, a gentleman who sits right in front of us in our church today and is in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame and wrote, wrote a lot of music with the Gaithers and others, and I, I've seen him listed in your credits in that movie. Um, but then your movie, the one that I think you, you really did the, the, the direction on and writing on and began shooting shortly after your father's death, if I remember right, is... Um, the second coming. The second coming, mm-hmm. and uh, and you directed it, and and I just got a chance. I just got that in the mail yesterday and reviewed it. I also want to recommend that because people can can order that uh, directly, but it's much much higher quality than the other work, and it is. It, 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 he 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 told me when I ordered it from uh, Pastor Green that you, you would see the high quality of your work and your vision, and I'll have to say that it was a, a huge step forward. I think your dad would be extremely proud. And where you've taken things to the next level and the next step from what he could do and the quality of what you do in that. And it even has some scenes that people like us or Bible prophecy buffs are always interested in. But you actually show in live action like you built a real-life statue in Daniel. Oh, yeah. With the four images and actually physically destroyed it with a unhewn rock. That's correct. I've only seen little pictures, you know, on the people's scrolls that they put up on the stage, you know, for their prophecy charts. Well, you show the the real kahuna where it really happens mm-hmm. in there. And the other cool thing is you actually have a, a Jeep vehicle because you have a little bit of what people would associate with Thief in the Night kind of uh, right. New World Order 666 activity where they chase you down. But the, the Jeep you use, I believe you got from a gentleman by the name of Pony Maples. Exactly, Pony Maples. That's, uh, I was surprised that, that you uh, you know came up with that name, but that was him. Well, he's a friend of mine because uh, one of my inventions to protect fuel tanks on vehicles, uh, he he let me use one of his Humvees down there to actually oh, okay. design and measure. And I, I built the first prototypes for the military vehicles off his vehicles downtown. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Have you been to his home and sat had, in that cockpit? Yeah, he has an entire airplane for our yeah. listeners built a military airplane cockpit built in his basement. Exactly. That you can in. And, in fact, has, I guess, probably the only functioning Norton bomb site in the world that actually works in his basement. That you can look down through it like you're bombing Tokyo. Right, uh, exactly. It's pretty pretty unique. But yeah, I didn't. I probably you probably knew Tony ba- Maples uh, much better than I. But he was a, uh, a a great person, and he helped me immensely. Uh, I met him through a gentleman by the name of Julian Cole, who's mm-hmm. the director of photography on uh, the Second Coming. Oh. He, had, he had done the gunboat commercials for Pony that I guess probably got him the uh, military uh-huh. contracts. And Julian said, "Oh well, yeah." I know a guy who might be able to help you. He put me in touch with Pony Maples, and then Pony said, oh, no problem. Uh, let me put you in yeah. touch with somebody, and he put me in touch with John Justice, who actually yeah. worked for him, and then I ended up giving John. John was one of the yeah. people in the Jeep in the second company. Yeah, got you your military Jeep for, for yeah. shooting. Um, all that aside, your amazing past. There's so much more we don't have time to talk about, but uh, what have you done since then, and what are you up to today? Oh, boy. Well, I had uh, something that happened in my life, which I won't go into, which took me out of the ministry. uh, And that's uh, neither here nor there. It's just part of life. It didn't take me out of my love for God. It didn't change anything for that. But I I got out of the ministry. Since then, I have made uh, uh, TV commercials, a slew of music videos, uh, working on a novel, uh, run multiple websites. Uh, I'm... um, now, you've done music videos from some pretty famous people like Clint Black and 
Well, I have worked with everybody in town, whether or not I did their music. But when I say everybody, yeah, I could. I worked on a, a, a TBS special called Roots of Country Music, uh, which yeah. is not that many years ago. You could probably still yeah. find it. And uh, I didn't work on the entire series, but but through that I was able to work with uh, just about everybody. And then I got to spend an evening with Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings. That was via the Latch LaRue connection. Uh, got to hang with Willie Nelson. Uh, that was also, you know, for a project with Latch LaRue, which I was trying to put together. Right now, what I'm working on more than anything are, are basically three things. One is I would like – I'm no longer in the ministry. I don't feel led to get back into it. I do feel led to uh, help Tim Green, mm -hmm. timgreenministries.org, uh, expand his memory, uh, ministry. And uh, I'd like to do more on that, help him. Uh, he, he, is, he has not embraced the Internet age. Yeah. And I'm, I'm basically his webmaster. And I'd like to do some more things for Tim that would help him reach a broader audience. So that's one thing I'm doing. Yeah. I'm part of filmcom.com. There's a dash, film-com.com. And this coming year, uh, we are having, uh, beyond the normal secular part, we've also got Faith in Films, which will be part of it. And then um, thirdly, I, I wouldn't mind doing another movie but I'm not I, – I don't know that I will. I, I, I will have to feel led from God. Uh, I'm also helping a young man uh, put together his uh, dream. He's a Christian singer, but he also loves animals. And the name of his website is animalhuggersunited.com. Um, yeah. And so that's between all those things I've mentioned, yeah. plus trying to make a living doing a, a variety of websites. Uh, I'm actually putting together a website, nothing to do with anything we said called a ukulele Christmas. <laughs> I'm just doing that for yeah. uh, for pay. And uh, so, you know, I stay well, busy. Well, Brother Tim, e even if this doesn't come from God, maybe if you could hear it from me. Uh, I think after 40 years, it is time to do a Footman remake. <laughs> I, I heard you say that. Yeah. I think it's time for it, and I think maybe what we could do instead of the communists is we could focus on what everybody else is talking about today, which is a globalist new world order takeover. And I think the time is right. Uh, all the stars are in alignment for for another uh, Footman uh, remake. You, you have such a built-in cult following of people throughout the world that absolutely love and adore that movie, are captivated by it for what it is. Uh, who love your Christian work. And in fact, people are even outside the church are so captivated by those movies that they're willing to tolerate and listen to your Christian message to see what you're doing. And that is an enviable position to be in. Mm -hmm. That means you have a door open that other Christians cannot get into because you have their ear and their attention. And um, I just think that that would be a wonderful thing for you to do to give back something. Again, I'm just putting that bug in here, and I know a lot of our Futurians would feel the same way, and you would certainly have a lot of volunteers and other people willing to step forward. I know I, I, I'll make it official here. I would step forward to help you in this, uh, whether it's in writing or production or behind or in front of camera or whatever like this. That is a movie that has caught the public's imagination over the years, and after 40 years, I think it's time to update it and to look at the real threats for America today. 
We document those on Future Quake every week. We talk about uh, the banking system that is slowly taking away all of our wealth uh, and a Christian community that has so much bought into the consumerism and uh, materialistic culture that we're facilitating their takeover of the world and our nations by our participation in Babylon systems that are available here. And so much activity going on right now to lead to the culmination of this age and unelected groups that run our nation and other places and and uh, the endless wars that we have from our nation and around the world that are used as ways to take away our rights and, and even wars that are being started between different Christian or different religious faiths right now that Christians are buying into that will eventually lead us to t- have our rights taken away to practice our faith. So I, I, I really think the time is right for a vision like that movie to come forward with an updated version. Well, I will certainly uh, take to heart what you said. I'm not going to give you any answer on this uh, on the public airways here, but that's an interesting analogy. I didn't think of myself as having a door that other Christians don't have, but when I did mention this to my prayer group today, uh, they said, well, you know, maybe God's speaking to you, so who knows? Well, you know, we've had an opportunity uh, here in Future Quake to talk in a way in a manner that people aren't used to hearing Christians talk. Uh, very straightforward manner, talk about the topics that they don't hear about in church. Uh, if you go back and look at our archive of shows, you'll see we have topics that are just too hot to handle for churches. But we talk about it from a Christian standpoint. Uh, and we have people who are not Christians on our show and others who listen, and they respect what we do because we're not phony. And right. we try to come forward, and they appreciate. They don't have any problems with Jesus. They just have a problems with church, the way it's done. Right. And the phonies in church. And I think you're in a similar position. Uh, you have an army of followers. I mean, it's a, it's a true cult following through your movies. And there are growing ranks of, of Christian people who are in a prophecy, uh, even the conspiracy buff crowd that are, that are looking at a prophecy angle of conspiracy theories and things. And we track that. And online, there are just untold numbers of people who are interested in these topics. And as they're more familiar with your work, I can't think of somebody who's in a better position to come with something like this. And, and just the buzz would be created of a, of a remake of this film. would just have a huge following for it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And I can't, I can't imagine somebody better to be the new commissar uh, <laughs> to replace Cecil than you yourself. Uh-huh. At your age, I can't think of anybody who could handle that or the equivalent position better. But yeah. I, I, chances are I would be behind the camera if that did happen, but I appreciate the thought. Well, it'd sure be nice to see Orman Organization or something like that up on the silver screen again, even in the digital age with digital equipment and, and the kind of stuff that we have right now. Uh, that would mean something good was happening in the world to see, to see that. You know, uh, as we come here to a close, there's just a few points I want to make to get your opinion on. Okay. You know, do you think that the more recent um, edgy topics of interest to today's Christian audience, and we talk about them here on our show, such as we even talk about things like the return of the Nephilim, uh, whether they may come back or what they did in the past, or uh, uh, spirit uh, interactions coming back in the last days, you know, and their involvement on the earth here, or even uh, the transhumanism movement and what Satan can be doing through that, uh, his spiritual purposes and in, in making the transhuman man through uh, the activities we see in our newspapers today, or even the UFO topic, where we, we look at demonic deceptions of UFOs 
uh, and and even the types of sorcery that we have today, not only just through drugs and things like ayahuasca and and the shamanistic experiences, but electronic sorcery that we're we're subject to through our media and things like this. Are these kind of topics that you think would be ripe for for a kind of Ormond touch today? Well, that's a pretty broad-ranging question to ask, uh, to answer succinctly. Uh, I think any time that you can combine what is on people's mind, whatever they, whatever that is, into a form that touches them, then you can move them in a direction that you would like them to move. Uh, that is done in popular film. Uh, secular film uh, every day. It certainly should be and can be done uh, from a Christian standpoint. I'll go back to what I mentioned uh, an hour ago with Dave Ute, that if you can sit here and think, you can also know that there are other people thinking the same thing, but from the reverse angle. So, the you know, there's many great minds that are thinking how to manipulate the public for gain. So, we can also have great minds to think about how to guide the public uh, to God. But to comment specifically about what you mentioned about one thing being better or worse than another, I think it all depends on the story and how it is defined uh, rather than saying specific one topic should work and one topic should not. It's all, as my dad used to say, uh, in the beginning was the word. Uh, you know, God said right there, it's all uh, a story to be told. Mm-hmm. It's all how you craft it and how you bring it to uh, fruition. Well, if you look through the seven years of archives of Future Quake shows, you will see a listing of seven years of topics that are not talked about in our pulpits. And we, we strongly support involvement in our local church. Brother Tom and I are both very involved in our local church. Most of our listeners are. But even with that said, there's so much going on in the society there are things being talked about in other public forums, whether it's Coast to Coast with George Norrie or other kind of forums, a History Channel, Discovery Channel, and it's silent from the pulpit on the answers that we have to these kind of topics that occur today. And that's where I think there's a need for people like yourself to take these taboo subjects and be Christians and to boldly proclaim them. I appreciate the thought. And I think the need's still there. Would, would you say in comparison that today's Christian cinematic arts are basically boring compared to the stuff you did? Uh, well, once again, I, I don't. You'd have to give me a specific example. Uh, boring in what aspect? You're talking about technically, story wise? Here's the, here's the kind of Christian movies we have now. We have movies like Fireproof, okay? Right. Which, which I personally feel has sort of an over feminized touch and, and really focuses on the feminization of the church overall. Where, where we have weak male characters, where we have a, a certain emphasis on things that would be of more interest to the female audience, which really dominates a lot of the discussion in church materials and the self-help books that we see in our, in our bookstores and things like that. And the real hard, edgy kind of stuff, uh, you don't hardly see anything cinematically in a Christian world from, from, from the real edgy kind of bold kind of stuff. What what did you think of uh, uh, Passion of Christ? Uh, f- well, you know that was a very controversial movie. You're talking about Mel Gibson's, right? Um, well, you know you definitely could get the Roman Catholic influence in it, uh, which it is what it is. 
but it was certainly bold in many aspects. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. Yeah, this is the Catholic aspect. I made that mistake in the sacred symbol. I used Ave Maria in it, <laughs> but I, I was just thinking I didn't yeah. even think about Catholic. But but uh, but the thing is though, it was it was a little more masculine. Yeah, well, and I that, like that. It showed it showed the struggle, the suffering for what it was, and it, and it didn't dress it up, it didn't pretty it up, um, it was not self-centered. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we have today in the various media and Christian is all about self-help, uh, feeling better about ourselves. Uh, contrast that to the pastor that you had in in your movie and in the Grim Reaper. Where he's not focused on on himself and his internal grieving, he's got spiritual battles he's got to do. Mm-hmm. He's battling for the spiritual welfare of his family. That's the difference that I'm talking about. Well, I, I guess to answer you uh, in a in a manner that uh, you know, I, I don't mind offending people, but I, I don't know that this is a place that I would choose that particular <laughs> battle. I think there is a place for a variety of Christian films that target a variety of different people. There may indeed be too many feminine films, but then women need to be led to the Lord. Sure, I'm not, I'm not faulting that. But uh, the fact is, we need the male presence but and, and, the, say, and the influence there, yeah. I cut my teeth. Uh, well, I learned my filmmaking from my dad. He learned his filmmaking from making westerns. And uh, action is... You know, part of my, that's why I blew up the statue uh, or I, uh, I set my back on fire because I, you know, enjoy those moments when you can touch an emotion and, uh, you know that's that's very palatable. It's something that people remember. Or as you mentioned, Cecil Scaife getting his arm ripped off. It makes you <laughs> think back to that movie and yeah. remember. Now, if you could do the same thing and think back to a Christian film and say, "Hey, I really remember that statue blowing up," uh, that might make you think, "Well, that blew up because King Nebuchadnezzar did this, this, and this." Uh, if you can, if you can walk out of a movie and there's one memorable moment that makes you yeah. remember the movie, then you've touched that person. Uh, hopefully, you convert them to Christ. But even if you just make them think uh, about something that one day down the line leads them in the direction they need to go, you're not going to reach every person at that particular moment. But if you can reach them at some level that makes them think, then I think you've accomplished something. Yeah. Well, I, I think you know some people would think an Ormond Christian movie is too shocking. Uh, it's too intense for them. But I would submit that when you read the Bible narrative as it is, it is much closer to an Ormond Christian film than it is to a generic Christian film. <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, if my dad hears this, however that would work spiritually, I think he would smile. Well, I, I think there is an intensity in the Bible narrative. There is a, a lack of sugarcoating and varnishing over the realities of things as they are in the Bible, and that's how it is in a Norman film, to, to the best of your ability. And do you see anybody in the Christian cinema right now that's anywhere like the movies that you did? Uh, probably not that I could call out by name, no. So I think that's your way of saying I should uh, get back in the game. You got some breath in you, Tim. The Lord's leaving you here for a purpose. Oh, I uh, hey, I'm I'm ready to run a marathon. I I didn't say I was down for the count. Uh, I just I just said I was in the ministry right now. But yeah. you know, the, the Lord could speak to me. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe He is. 
We're, right. If we're Christians, we're all in the ministry. Right. We no, may not be wearing a collar or some equivalent of that, but uh, you're still ministering right now, so, you know. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Uh, no, I, I've, I've never thought I'm down for the count and i got many things to do, whether it's a film like you're referring to or whether it's helping someone like, uh, you know, Tim reach a, a greater audience. You know, I'll let the Lord direct me on that, but no, by no means do I feel... Uh, you remember that joke about the preacher who said, hey, who wants to go to, you know, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. And everybody raised their hand, but the guy in the back and the preacher said, uh, Brother Joe, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, well, of course I do, Pastor, but I thought you were getting a load to go up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, uh, I, I'm not down for the count by yeah. any means, you know. But, uh, but well, I, I want you to keep bringing that up with your prayer group. Okay. Uh, and uh, I got some homework for you. Um, if you get a chance, check out. Uh, uh, th- there was a conference that was held this summer that Brother Tom and I both spoke at called the Future Congress Conference. No, and I think it was here. something like 60 some odd uh, speakers, and videos are forthcoming on those talks. And this this is the kind of edgy material that's classic Orman material. And, in fact, uh, Chris Pinto showed some of his uh, movies there, which is something you need to be aware of. He's a local uh, filmmaker, Christian I think, filmmaker. I think you mentioned him to me. Yeah. But, uh, futurecongress.com, is that it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you look through that material, maybe even drop over at uh, raidersnewsnetwork.com, which will run a press release of our discussion tonight. And you're going to be inspired with a whole lot of things that will get your wheels turning. Uh on, on that that need that Ormond touch. Okay. And there's a community of people who now really, really are Christian people who really appreciate what you do. I appreciate that. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, there's uh, Chris Pinto. I see his picture, so obviously I am on the right. And wait a minute. Uh, yeah, this is the correct website. So yeah, you'll I, see I, us down there. You'll see uh, uh, see our, our speaking on sleep paralysis and uh, uh, oh, so, sorcery, sorcery and everything like this. And... Uh, this is the kind of stuff I think if your dad had been around today in that age, you all would have had so much more support than, than just an Estes Perkle to yeah. do what your vision was. It's a, and in the Internet age and with digital production and the lower cost and things like that, um, we need people that are bold. I guess that's the point I'm bringing this as I bring this to a close. We need bold people with the kind of vision that your dad had and then you had. To, to not be kowtowed to fit in a very narrow mold that our Christian environments force us into. And it's going to be our artists that are going to lead us out of it. If we're going to be relevant to our culture around us today, it's artists and visionaries like yourself that are going to be able to do it. And you have a legacy. You know, some people, again, focus on the camp and the datedness of some of the productions. But the fact is, was that they were daring and they were bold and they took people's breath away when they came out. And because of that, the altars were filled. And there's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people that will say thank you to Tim Orman, to Ron Orman and June for what they did. And nobody can take that away from you. I appreciate that. And wherever life has taken you, the ups and downs and all these other kind of things, there are going to be major cities uh, in the new heavens and the new earth that are filled with Orman organization converts that came to Christ because of that. And I'd like to see those cities filled up even more. Well, I don't know that I have a particular uh, 
uh, I certainly have no rebuttal except to say uh, thank you for the compliment. And uh, I, I, I agree that there, there should be, you know, while anyone is on this earth, until the Lord does come, we all should be working to lead more people to Christ. That's, that's a given. Well, I don't know anybody that can make a Tim Orman film other than Tim Orman. And uh, <laughs> as the years go by, I'm sure you've gotten extra perspective and thought and vision from what you were as a young man. And uh, we'd be really excited here on Future Quake to report and even assist you uh, in what you do in that vein. And in, any closing words of advice you have for some of we, – we, we have people in our audience who are people producing videos on YouTube. They're producing documentaries. They're producing products, books, different things that are trying to reach uh, people in the truther community, people that are new age people and the new age things to try to, to, to reach out to them. Any suggestions you have for them on how they can be bold, daring and bold and, and take the brave stands that you and your, your parents did to reach out to people? I think I can sum that up in just a few words, and I've been lengthy enough, is uh, don't listen to the naysayers. Stay true to your cause. Set your sight on the goal and uh, accomplish your task. And and if they feel like what they're doing, they're called to do by God, is too far out, they need to stop and go watch The Burning Hell or The Grim Reaper or uh, The uh, Second Coming or any of these kind of movies and realize that somebody's already been there before. If you want to accomplish something for God and you feel that God is speaking to you personally, and I'm, re I'm, I'm referring to that in a spiritual standpoint, Set your sight on the goal, don't listen to the naysayers, and do whatever it takes to accomplish your goal. We should not be scared of technology. We should embrace it and use it for the benefit of God because you can be assured that other people are using it for the benefit of themselves or taking it more from a Christian perspective, you know, for Satan. So... Don't be distracted from the the wiles of the world. Set your sights, walk forward, and just do whatever you have to do to make your dream become a reality. Mm -hmm. And this is coming from somebody who's actually done that 40 years ago and blazed a trail that nobody's been to before. And uh, we can do things like future quake and things because people like yourself were the first ones to take those those kind of steps. Uh, how can our listeners get a hold of any of your media products that are available and keep up with your activities? Well, I made certain that I had mentioned a couple of times my good friend, uh, Tim Green, who is not only a friend, but a uh, Baptist evangelist who is still active on the circuit. Uh, several years ago, I signed over all rights to our Christian films to him uh, to allow him to market. So any of the films that are currently available and as others are made available uh, will be uh, able to be purchased via his website, timgreenministries.org. And as far as keeping up with me, I don't have a blog per se about me, uh, and I might have to keep up uh, via FutureQuake. That I'm, I'm not certain if I have an answer to that. Okay. I, I do update multiple websites, but I don't necessarily use my voice as Tim Ormond. Uh, I might be a alter ego uh, yeah. as I write a blog for uh, for Film Nashville or something like that. But, okay. Uh, but as you know, if you need to get in touch with me bad enough, you can. Okay. Well, I, and I'd like for you to keep me posted on 
creative projects like this that you do. And uh, when you're ready to start that footman movie, uh, I'll sit down with a pencil. We'll get us a script put together. I've certainly done that before. And uh, we'll get the cameras going. And uh, we'll just do something for the Lord while he still gives us time. Uh, Tom, did you have any comments on anything that's on your mind? Nope. Uh, he He's experienced your movies as well. So I've used him as a guinea pig for many of them, Tim. So okay. He's a worm as well. I want to thank you so much for being with us. One quick thing. I just want to ask our announcer, Merv, to come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Well, we're going to call it a day. I know we've kept you here forever, Tim, but I just want to tell you that you really inspire me with what you've done and in the context of what you've done over your career, and it really energizes me to want to be more bold and out of the box in what I do in my Christian faith. And uh, that's, that's a gift you've given me already. And I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time. I know you're busy with other things and to talk to a bunch of strangers, but now you know some brothers in the Lord here. And uh, the future Quake audience here are the kind of people who can appreciate what you do. And you have a ready, ready-made audience of tens of thousands of people that listen to us around the world that would be ready to see anything else that you'd have available or would recommend in the days ahead. I appreciate that. I have enjoyed my time on the show. It's been fun to take a trip down uh, memory lane and, and remember some uh, some interesting events, which uh, you know God has led me through. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, obviously God through Jim Ripley, Red, uh, Ridley has led right. me to you. So uh, I enjoyed my time. By, by the way, do you have a lot of Christian media outlets call for you to talk about these movies? Uh, you're the first. That's usually common on Future Quake. That's just the kind of thing we want to talk to is for fellow believers in the Lord that are being ignored by the mainstream Christian media. And they're, they miss a lot of inspirational, inspirational stories like yourself. So I want to thank you so much for being with you. Uh, please let me know any prayer requests or things you have in the future, and we'll, we'll take them forward. But uh, until that time comes, we'll look forward to seeing you again on Future Quake. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.